from the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever the case may be, wherever you are, and welcome to Midnight in the Desert, the program that covers every single time zone around the world, just like a blanket. We keep it warm at night. I guess we warm it up during the day over there, too, right? Anyway, welcome to the program. We have two simple rules. No bad language and no using the restroom during the show. <laughs> now, the second rule is actually only one call per show. Those are just listener checks. All right, first thing I want to do tonight is correct my email. I said uh, last night that you could email me ideas for tomorrow night's open lines session where anything goes. And I mean ideas about, you know, what we what special line we could have that would be really fun. And I gave you the wrong email address. So let me correct that tonight. If you would like to email me a suggestion that you think would be fun to explore with people on the air, you know, just to use as a special line. I mean, it's going to be open lines, right? But special lines are fun. It, the, the correct email is artbell at knye.com. That's kilowatt nancy yokohama easy. Artbell at knye.com. Sorry about that. I'm sure you, a lot of you had bounced emails. All right. Um, I do want to give a little news here because I'm afraid there is news. It's never good. Uh, confronting insurmountable obstacles, he said. The majority leader, Kevin McCarthy, suddenly withdrew from the contest for Speaker of the U.S. House on Thursday, shocking everybody just before the vote and producing an ever deeper chaos for divided Congress. Said he, we need a new face. Now, people were looking at him in disbelief, and, you know, nobody can know what happened on TV. Um, you know, I watch a lot of political-type shows, right? And somebody would have handed him a slim... 10 by 10, 10 by 11 manila envelope, and he would have opened it, his face would have blanched, and he would say, okay, I'm out. That would be how it would happen on TV. I'm not saying that happened here. But there was shock. Russia continues to help us to death in Syria. Clashes intensified uh, sharply on Thursday between Syrian troops and insurgents in central and northwestern Syria, part of what a top general um, called a clearing um, operation near government strongholds on the coast. This is, this is really getting serious. They fired um, 26 long-range missiles into Syria. Well, actually... Four of them did not make it into Syria and exploded instead in Iran. Turkey is getting involved. Now, look, I don't want to scare anybody. 
But we did a show not long ago on nuclear war that I would recommend to you. Go back in the archives. If you're a time traveler and you can hear the older shows, it was, what, about a week ago or so? We did a show on nuclear war, what World War III would be like. And again, I don't want to scare anybody. But U.S. and Russian jets are brushing wingtips up there, so to speak. That's metaphor. They're not really brushing wings. But uh, you don't need to with modern jets. You can shoot somebody down at 30 or 40 miles away. This is really, really getting serious. Allies are becoming involved. Enemies more involved. Big enemies even more involved. Could it lead to World War III? Well, I have friends in high places, three-lettered places, and they're beginning to worry. And if they worry, we should worry. I'm not saying that World War III is right around the corner. Um, yeah, but it could be. This really is scary stuff. Uh, you see Russia and the U.S. beginning to mix it up in the skies, bombing different targets with different things in mind over the same country in the Middle East or that area, and, and you just know it's going to be trouble. When President uh, Obama arrives in Oregon on Friday, he's going to find a timber Timbertown, uh, still in mourning over the shooting that killed eight community college students and a teacher, but he will also find a deeply held emotion, something like anger, seething over his calls for new gun restrictions. People don't like that. I don't like that. We have the right to bear arms, and... Uh, What's wrong, I will say it a million times if I must, is it's a mental health problem, not a gun problem. The president himself actually made a small reference to a mental health problem the other day during his speech, the emotional speech after the shooting. Now, this is uh, shocking and interesting at the same time. Dr. Alan Stern, you may have heard, sparked absolutely frenzied speculation that the space agency NASA was about to announce a groundbreaking discovery after saying scientists had found something amazing on the icy planet. That's like saying something wonderful. He also referred to the planet as alive during a speech to students. And so everybody went berserk. Even Richard last night was going, my God, what could it be? What could it be? He even was quoted as telling a meeting, NASA won't let me tell you what we're going to tell you on Thursday. It's amazing. But with so many NASA announcements, this one, there was huge disappointment when he took to a social uh, media, the, the social media, to squash all this, saying, well, he had no idea how the remarks had been misinterpreted using the handle new at New Horizons 2015 sent a series of tweets in which he then retreated from his own personal account, debunking the idea, even the idea of an imminent announcement, much less something amazing. 
He wrote, there is a false rumor going around. There's going to be a big new Horizon Science announcement tomorrow. Completely false. Asked by a fellow user whether he had been misquoted, he replied, I have no idea how it was misinterpreted, but it was. So that's one you got to wonder about, too. I mean, do you suppose that the torsion field was bearing down on him from above and he decided he can't release the information? I don't know. Any more than I know about the speaker thing. <laughs> All right, so coming up after the break, uh, we have somebody special tonight. We have Kevin Nitnick, a hacker extraordinaire. Kevin is simply the world's most famous hacker, once one of the FBI's most wanted because, well, he hacked into 40 major corporations just for the challenge. And they sent him to jail just for the challenge. Kevin is now a trusted security consultant to the Fortune 500 and governments worldwide. Kevin and the Global Ghost Team, how's that for a name, now maintain 100% successful track records in being able to penetrate the security of any system they're paid to hack into using a combination of technical exploits and social engineering. And he will also be here in a moment to tell you how he and Tommy Chung alone, instead of the whole Chinese government, uh, hacked successfully into Sony. We'll tell you all about that. Stay right where you are. This is Midnight in the Desert. I'm Art Bell. Midnight in the Desert doesn't screen calls. We trust you, but remember, the NSA, well, you know. To call the show, please dial 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. By far and away, my favorite. All right, everybody. Uh, if you think you're ready, here comes the most famous hacker in the world, otherwise known as Kevin Mitnick. Kevin, welcome to uh, Midnight in the Desert. Hey, it's great to be back on your show again, Art. Yep, nice to have you. Um, so, how did you and Tommy do it? I I, I cannot confirm or deny anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about Sony later. All right, so you've got a long and uh, well, somewhat sordid history behind you, um, oh. and and it always serves well at the beginning. I mean, it's been how many years since we talked? I don't know a lot. Wow, it's at least maybe four or five years. At least. Uh, that's when you were at Clear Channel. I don't yeah. remember how long ago that was. Well, that was a long time ago. That was more than that. Time is compressing as you're getting older. Uh, yep, that's true. Maybe I'll have to create a new identity for myself and make myself younger. Yeah, I actually, um, <laughs> you good luck with that. I, You know, I left there in about 2003, so that gives you some clue. Oh, wow, I didn't realize it's been that long. <laughs> well, it's great yes. to be back on your show again. I, I, I missed uh, your shows on the air, so it's actually it's fantastic to have you back on. Thank you, and uh, it's kind of nice because no matter where you are, whether you get a radio station locally or not, you can get us. You know, we're 
on the Internet worldwide. All right, so um, your infamous background, um, how you got started, how you got stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, like how I got started with computer hacking was for my love of magic. So when I was a young boy around 10 years old, I used to uh, ride my bicycle over to the magic store, and I always wanted to know how the magicians, or it actually, or the word magicians, or kind of sales magicians, would actually do their magic tricks, right? right? And oh, um, yes. I just love doing this stuff and amazing my friends. And when I, uh, I met when I went to high, when I was in high school, I met this other kid in high school who could actually work magic with a telephone, and he could do all these tricks like. He can get, you know, my unlisted number. He could uh, add what they called custom calling features to my phone. And back in those days, it was like three-way calling, call waiting, call forwarding. Oh, yeah. uh, he could just do anything. And I was just like, I was just, you know, wowed. And I just wanted to learn how I can do what he did because it was so cool at the time. And this was a, a this was what they called phone freaking. Right. And this is kind of the predecessor to hacking. And, you know, uh, not only was I involved in this, but if you recall... Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak back in the mid-70s uh, were also involved in phone freaking a little bit differently. They built these boxes called blue boxes. Mm-hmm. One blue box is it's, a, it's just a device that emits a certain frequency tones called multi-frequency. And uh, in 2600 hertz was, you know, the initial tone that you would use before you used the blue box. Actually, anyway, they officer, these- it's oh. just a blue box, officer, huh? That's all it is. Yeah, that's all it is. But maybe you could paint it a different color <laughs> than, you know, evade the cops. But anyway, so they, uh, so Waz, you know, was the technical genius. And there was this article in the 1971 issue of Esquire magazine. And uh, there was another gentleman named uh, John Draper, who's known as Captain Crunch, was interviewed in this article. And then Waz read it and, you know, and he learned, I think it was called The Little Secrets of the Blue Box. Mm-hmm. And, then he, and then they wanted to build one, right? Because it was so cool to be able, it wasn't making a free phone call that was so exciting. It was actually being able to uh, manipulate Ma Bell and, you know, route a call, like for me to sit at a payphone in Los Angeles, call the time in Australia. Now, I've interviewed right? Draper a number of times, by the way. Oh, you have? Oh, oh sure, okay. yeah. He's actually living in Vegas now, if, if you believe that. But, in any event, so um, so are a lot of uh, people absconding from the law. Not not that he is, but uh, well, wait a second, I live there too. Well, but I'm not absconding. Are you further absconding? proving my point. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, so Waz was the technical guy behind this, and he actually you know uh, learned from Draper. He actually Draper and and Waz met and. Uh, they, he was able to actually build one of the boxes. I, Waz actually showed it to me in 2000 when we did a documentary together called The History of Hacking. And, uh, and then Jobs had the idea, well, how can this You know, I, I should notify you, buddy. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're dropping a packet every now and then. Uh, that's the hotel I'm in. I'm sorry. That's all right. I just thought I'd let or you know. Or somebody's hacking the, the connection. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll speak slower. No, so in, so in any event, so Jobs had the idea, hey, let's sell these at Berkeley's campus and, you know, make some money. And that was the actual initial funding for the Apple One board. So kind of Apple computers started from this, uh, from dabbling in phone freaking, if you will. So it's, it's quite an interesting story. In fact, uh, there's going to be a new uh, Steve Jobs movie, I think, out Friday here right. in the States. Right. So I'm excited to see it. 
Oh, really? But in, any, okay. but, but, but in any event, so I was just like so fascinated with this phone freaking stuff. I just wanted to learn all about it. I remember when I was a kid, I would uh, go on these dumpster diving missions at the phone company. And what dumpster diving is, is when you're looking in the trash for discarded manuals and information and intercompany directories. And I, I remember at one time uh, we found uh, a bag of uh, trash, you know, a small little bag, and somebody had gone to the trouble of ripping up this document and, you know, tiny bits of paper. It must have taken them an hour or two. And actually, diving into a dumpster is kind of social engineering in your world, right? Not really social engineering. Social engineering <laughs> is kind of more manipulating a target, but we actually took these bits of paper and put it together at the local Winchell's Donut House in L.A., and it was the entire username and password list to the system called Cosmos. And with Cosmos, you could actually, you know, create telephone service, or if you have, you, know, you could... You could basically do anything at the time, and it gave you all this power over the phone company. Oh man, so, you must have been king for a while. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, for quite some time. You know, I think at least over a decade. So in any so in any event, so I was so amazed with this like phone freaking stuff that I just delved into this, even to the point where I would be staying up late, you know, uh, talking to other people with similar interests, and I'd always be right. late for school. Right. <laughs> so I mean, so kind of like overtook my life for a little bit and then i met this other kid in uh, in high school that knew about all the things i could do with the phone and i was also also in amateur radio at the time so when i was like 13 years old i passed my general test and uh and i was always fascinated with the ability to use a thing called an auto patch and i know you know you know what that I is i do and we'll tell the audience but kevin let me i forgot to announce uh in my opening this will be news for you and pretty warm news. You're, are you still a ham? Oh no, they took your ticket, huh? No, no, I, 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 they, 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 they went to take my ticket because of my hacking stuff. Yes. But um, I, I went to a hearing, a hearing in, in DC. It cost me like twenty grand. Right. And you know, hire a lawyer. You got it back. And uh, yeah, they basically the FCC, the they had a hearing to see if I was rehabilitated enough to have my amateur radio ticket back, and they and they and they gave it back. So uh -huh. I still have it. Unfortunately, I haven't had time to use it, but right. uh, I still have the ticket. All right. Well, guess what? Um, it was announced today that the Heath Kit Company is back in business. No way. You way? Serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Heath Kit, folks, they built kit. You know. Kits for ham operators, kids, everybody, so you could learn about electronics. And many of us have been mourning the passing of Heathkit now for a long, long time. Heathkit is back in business. So if you want to get your kid a kit and start them down the road toward electronics and, uh, and then of course, uh, elicit hacking like, uh, Kevin has done, <laughs> not really, um, Getting them into electronics. Get a Heath kit, really, seriously. Free advertising for Heath kit, but there you go. They announced it today. Hey, you know, Art, I built my first two-meter handheld, two-meter radio handheld. It was a Heath kit. There you go. That I bought from this place called Henry Radio, if you remember them in L.A. They were like, you know, one of the old school places. And I remember, uh, again, I was 12 or, or 13 years old, so... Back to the story. So, well, wait, some, wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. Okay. Stop you again. Right. <laughs> you had a Heath kit story. I've got one. Tell me. Um, my first transmitter was an AT1. Uh, that's first the one I think they ever made, actually. My, so I didn't have a receiver, uh, Kevin. So I built the, I ordered the Heathkit AC3 that went with it. Okay. And I started to build it, but I didn't read the manual uh, sufficiently. 
And uh, in the manual, it talked about clipping lead lengths. So when I put a resistor or a capacitor in, I thought, well, it's got to be the right size wire, and so I used all the wire involved. Well, when I finished building the kit, I had what looked like spaghetti sticking out of the bottom of it. Yeah. Because all the leads were, you know, like two inches long. (laughs) So they were all sticking out. And when I put it in the case before I gave it a try, it squished them all down. So when I plugged it in, um, well, you can imagine. Close your eyes and imagine. But there was smoke and fire. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh yes. So if you don't clip the leads, you know, you end up with stuff that sticks, you know, a couple inches. <laughs> no, it's a sad story. Anyway, go ahead. Now you can resume. Well, well, when we were talking about radio, you know, when they try to take my ham ticket, you know, I am glad they didn't know about something that I did in my younger years because remember I got my, my amateur radio license about 13 is I used to have so much fun when I was about 16 years old. I guess I was a junior in high school taking over McDonald's drive up windows. Oh, yeah, that can still be done, you know. That can still. So I remember the frequency was 154.6 megahertz and I forgot the PL. Uh, the subaudible tone, but you know what you could do is when somebody would drive up to make, make an order, I'd be using like a five watt handheld, which would overpower their small little transceivers they'd wear on their head. Yeah. And when customers would drive up, I'd get to take their order. And you know, Kevin taking their order is a lot more entertaining than McDonald's <laughs> taking the order. You know so, what? I'm, I'm going to tell you what I wanted to do. <laughs> I didn't do it, Kevin, but you'll appreciate it. Yeah. You know, in Walmart, they all have headphones and little radios um, in Walmart. And so I was thinking, how fun would it be to drive into the Walmart parking lot, announce yourself as the president of Walmart International Visiting, and the first, uh, oh, I don't know, 35 uh, employees to make it out the front door into the parking lot get $1,000 each, (laughs) and then just watch. Oh, yeah, that, that would definitely be entertaining. But I would never, of course, do that. Of course not. Of course so not. anyway, when I, when I was playing with this McDonald's, you know, people would drive up. I'd, you know, I'd take their order. I'd tell them they're the 100th customer. You know, your order's for free. Mm-hmm. My favorite is when the cops would drive up. You know, cops would drive up. I'd go, hide the cocaine, hide the cocaine. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and I, I wish I could have just seen this guy's face, you know, when they drove up to the drive-up window. But it got to the point that the manager of uh, this McDonald's. This was in Sherman Oaks, California on Ventura Boulevard. And uh, this guy was walking out into the parking lot. He's like looking in all the cars, you know, he's looking, you know, trying to see, well, who's who's playing around with the system. Right. And then he didn't see anything, right? So oh, then his not. next move was to walk up to the drive up window speaker and he actually bends down to look inside. Like somebody was like hiding inside. And of course I key down the mic. What the hell are you looking at? <laughs> and this guy flies back about 10 feet. I mean, hands down, I would say that was my favorite, uh, kind of radio trick, but I'm glad the FCC never knew about it. And moreover, it should be pointed out the statute of limitations has long run out on that. <coughs> yep, yep. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a little bit older than 16. Okay. But uh, so when I was in high school, this other kid said, "Hey, Kevin, you know, you might be interested in computers." And I was kind of, eh, you know, like I wasn't so interested. I was more interested in the telephony side. And back in those days, it was all electromechanical switching, crossbar, what they called step by step. And uh, so I, I decided, okay, I'll go meet the instructor. You know, and maybe it would be interesting. So I meet this guy. It was a guy named Mr. Christ. I still remember his name. And um, 
the you know I get introduced and then you know the, the instructor's going, Well, what's your prerequisites? Are you a senior? No. Did you have these classes yet? No. He says, I I can't let you in. And then the other student goes, hey, show, show Mr. Chris what you can do with the telephone, <laughs> right? And, and then it was like, it was like watching a guy watching David Copperfield perform, right? right? I mean, the guy was just like, oh my God. And immediately says, I'm letting you into class. And, and once you know, like the first assignment, this was a programming class, uh, Fortran, well, the first programming assignment was to write a Fortran program to find the first 100 Fibonacci numbers. <laughs> And at the time, I thought that was the most boring application of writing a Fortran program that they could think of. So instead, I thought, hey, it would be cool to write a program to steal the teacher's password. You know, at least that had some utility to it. So I didn't know anything about coding. And, you know, I just read, read, and read. And uh, at the time, I read a lot about the operating system they used in high school at the time. And I actually wrote this program that was a login simulator. Kind of today, they call it phishing. Hmm. And... What we used in the time, if you remember this, we had these old Olivetti terminals. They had acoustic coupler modems that would go 110 baud. That's about 10 characters a second, if you could imagine. And they would never, the instructor, when he would log on to the computer, you know, in the Los Angeles Unified School District, he would, he would always stay dialed in and never hang up the phone to re-log in. So basically what my program did was it simulated the login process. So I was able to steal his password. He never knew about it. And so it came around time to turn in the assignment. And he came up to me. He goes, where's your, where's your Fibonacci assignment, you know, Mr. You know, Mr. Mitnick? And I, hey, I didn't do it. I'm sorry. I, I was busy. And he goes, wait a second. I stuck my neck out to let you into class, I, you know, even though you didn't have the prerequisites, and you're going to embarrass me by not even doing the work? Mm. And I said, well... I wrote a different program. It's in Fortran. It was a little bit more complex. You might like it. And he goes, what is, what is it? I said, the one to steal your password, isn't it? Blah, 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 blah. You're the birth and nurturing of what will grow up to be a hacker and a criminal. Want to take a ride? Your conductor, Art Bell, will punch your ticket when you call 1-952-CALL-ART. That's 1-952-225-5278. Well, all right. Uh, Kevin Mitnick is here and, you know, joking around about criminal. Well, maybe once. Uh, he's not really criminal. He works and hacks only for the Lord now, actually. Um, welcome back, Kevin. You are there, right? Kevin? Kevin. Kevin! I'm here. I was muted. Sorry. <laughs> oh, good Lord. He's a computer guy, too. All right. Um, so where were we? You threw me all off now. Uh, we were talking about uh, when I was in high school, and I wrote that, uh, and the computer instructor allowed me in the class, and he gave me an assignment to write the first to find the first 100 Fibonacci numbers using Fortran, and said I wrote a program to steal his password. And got That's an what we're talking about. So when I showed him the program, I mean, first of all, he was like shocked that I had his password all this time, but he actually, you know, took the program, put it up on the chalkboard, and showed all the other students, and gave me a whole bunch of attaboys that this was the coolest program he's seen that he's seen. So back when I was in high school. 
um, the ethics taught, at least to me and to others, was hacking was a cool thing. You know, there were no laws against it. And that's kind of how I started on my path into this, uh, this hacking endeavors. So you were bad to the adolescent bone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so there you are in high school, um, got away with an A, or I figure went in and put it in one way or the other, got an A. No, no, didn't no. have to put it in. Okay. Yeah, it was just way too easy. So, All right. and so at some point uh, between the, the, the phone freaking and the hacking in high school, at some point there you turned the corner with computers. Uh, how did that happen? What do you mean by turn the corner? You mean turn the you know, corner. In other words, from phone freaking and messing around in school, you somehow then graduated to well, I don't know, bigger and more dangerous things. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I start you know started more hacking into the phone company because at the time I was definitely interested in in phone freaking. Then I took the ability of learning about computer systems to breach uh, Pacific Bell and General Telephone's computer networks and gain control of, you know, what, you know, phone company switches, if you will. So mm. basically had the ability to do anything with anybody's phone service in, you know, in, in California at the time, California, Nevada. And uh, that's kind of what, and we did it not really for any, you know, not any malicious purposes. It was more for pulling pranks, like changing uh, what they call the line class code in a switch on a phone number. What that did is change the type of service. So, you know, we'd go in and change, you know, our friend's, uh, home phones to pay phones. Yes. So every time they'd make a call, say please deposit, you know, twenty five cents, <laughs> to the point of, you know, changing, uh, changing their service to a prison phone, so they could only make collect calls. And I also seem to recall that phone freaks uh, would get together on dead trunks and they would speak with each other. Now I only Correct. know these Correct. things, of course, because uh, I've interviewed so many people like you. And please, folks, don't call yet. They're calling now and i we're not ready for calls but anyway uh so there would be like party line conversations between phone freaks all right yeah i remember those days yes and i would imagine you were well with uh some of the information you had you must have been kind of a, kind of like a king back then well i didn't really associate with many people i had a, I had a few you know close friends that also were into the same type of hobby and we just wanted to learn everything there was so we would you know, we would we would talk to others more to you know you know acting like a sponge to get more information. Yes. But we weren't really. It wasn't like I'd sit there and hang out on these uh, conference lines just to talk to people. That wasn't really interesting. All what I wanted to do was learn the information. How can I get better at getting more control over telephone company computer systems to pull pranks? Yeah. That was really the initial goal back in those days. All right. Um, a couple of myths, uh, possibly, about you, or not myths. You can clear them up. Uh, the whistling you've already covered, um, but was there something about nuclear weapons? Really? Oh, well, oh, yeah. So so if you fast forward, oh, yeah. you know, back in, you know, back to, like, 1989, I was, um, I was arrested by the FBI, and... Oh, uh, well, this, let's uh, stop here. How did, the okay. F, how did the FBI get on to you? Well, one of the guys that was kind of hacking with me uh, got upset with me, and uh, he basically called the FBI and told them what I was doing. So it was basically you were they didn't know out. what I was doing at the time, and so he acted as an informant and yeah. basically told them what you know told them what's going on. So you were ratted out, essentially. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, and exactly. he did this why? Because you were in a tiff with him over something. Well, I mean, we yeah. I'll I'll give you the I'll, I'll tell you the story. So we'd constantly be betting against each other, you know, to see you know who could do you know the better hacking. Sure. And and you know the bet was always 150 bucks. You know, dinner for two at Spago's. We figured out it's 150 bucks. Right. And um, and I kept winning, right? And uh, then he got upset about it and said, well, I'm not going to pay you. And I said, oh, yeah, you're not, you know, even though, you know, we, we, we have this bet going. Yeah. He goes, no, I'm not paying you. And I said, okay. Then I figured I'd like just, you know, kind of play, play a joke on him. So, you know, and so what I did is I, on a Friday when he was getting paid, yeah. I, I called up the, the company and you know, represented us with the Internal Revenue Service mm-hmm. and that we're fed, we're faxing over our garnishment order, so please don't, you know, oh. please do not give him his check. Oh. Right? And, and the whole idea was just to inconvenience him for the weekend. It was, yes, just, yes, yeah, yes. It was like a joke, a practical joke, but he got yes. really, really angry over the whole thing and then uh, sort of went to his it. boss. Yeah. And told them all the hacking we were doing, and, and and then they both called the FBI together. So that's basically how I got caught. Was you know other people knew what I was doing and informed on me. Ah, that's sad. Um, well, the FBI apparently did not get you right away, or you, you were on the lam for a while, or what? Well, that was later. So I was uh, you know, basically. I was, okay, so so this was your first. Story. So this, story. so I was arrested. All right, so this was your first brush with yeah, the FBI. Yeah, first, first brush. Oh, right? Okay, all right. So, so I ended up in court in federal court, and uh, and I, you know, I was you know arrested like on a Friday, and I end up in in I was in custody at Terminal Island Federal Prison for the weekend, which wasn't fun at all. And I end up in court, and I'm positive I'm going to get bailed out. It just matters how, how much is the bail going to be. So I end up in in federal court, and I walk in, and this attorney walks in that you know that's going to immediately represent me, a federal public defender. He right. goes, "Have you ever been outside the country?" I go, "No." Have you ever had a passport? No. And uh, we go into court, and the federal prosecutor starts telling this judge, "Not only do we have to hold Mr. Mitnick without a, without bond because he's such a danger to the community." Wow. We have to make sure he can't get access to a telephone. And then he goes on really? to say, if Mr. Mitnick gets access to a telephone, even a payphone in custody, he could dial up to the modem at NORAD, and he could whistle into the modem and communicate with the modem and instruct it to pass the launch codes to the ICBMs and start a nuclear war. And you're what telling is, me this I judge... It, I started laughing. This, like, I judge, heard of something this so judge bought ridiculous. it? The judge bought it. Well, the judge maybe didn't buy it, but just figured didn't you know, matter. Didn't matter, and so I was held in what they called a hole in the Metropolitan Detention Center in L.A. for almost a year. The only way, the only way I got out of the what, hole what, 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 a year a year in solitary confinement. The only reason I got what? out was I agreed to plead guilty. So the prosecutor told my attorney, if Kevin just, you know, does what we want... Wait wait a minute. What what, what were the actual charges? Um, Possession of unauthorized access devices. So I had uh, had access codes to be able to dial into MCI, which was a long-distance carrier, and then hacking into DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, and uh, getting access to source code of one of their uh, security tools that acted as an automated hacker because oh. I wanted to learn how the tool worked. So well, that's I, fairly yeah. serious, anyway, actually. Anyway, there were serious charges, but uh, so so in any event, you know, later on, I you know, after about a year, I was able to get out of there because 
Uh, before we I even leave, don't... before we even leave this, what's it like to spend a year in solitary? It was pretty tough. Can you imagine? You know, you know, like all your listeners going into their bathroom, you know, in their in their home, and shutting the door behind them and not leaving for a year. Now, mind you, they allowed you to shower for you know three you know three times a week. They'd let you go into this recreational area that wasn't so much bigger. You know, one hour a day. Only but, I can imagine that after an extremely spicy dinner. Otherwise, <laughs> but I'm telling you, I mean, it was pretty <laughs> horrific. I'm. I wonder how that actually affected me today. But the the idea that you're just locked in this, you know, the cell, uh, 23 out of 24 hours a day yeah. for a year yeah. is like. It was just an incredible amount of like how you know to my I asked myself today how did I get through such an ordeal and I just did you just adapt right well what did you do I mean did you sit in your cell and just sort of think uh, did you think about computers did you think about women did you think what did you think about thought about escaping <laughs> you really want to know the truth really <laughs> I get the hell out of there right so that's kind of like uh, what I thought about but I had. Uh, yeah, they allowed me because I wasn't there for being, you know, disciplinary reason. They allowed me to get a Walkman radio, which passed a lot of time, and uh, reading books and, you know, sleeping, you know, so a lot of sleeping. But it was a pretty... Uh, Weren't they afraid you'd rearrange the radio and set off a hydrogen bomb? <laughs> but, you know, I'll tell you one thing. So imagine I'm in solitary confinement in a federal prison, you know, facing, what, 400 years for hacking into Digital Equipment Corporation, and... Uh, uh, and in the okay, remember how they uh, said I was so dangerous I couldn't be near a telephone. So the judge. Okay, now you're you suddenly got closer to the mic and you sound better. I don't know what you did, but uh, oh, I, I'm holding the mic to my face. I'll I'll start doing that uh, okay. more frequently. Please. So anyway, um, the judge made a special order that I was only allowed to call five people at the time, and that was my um, my my mother, my grandmother, my attorney, my father. Like I had five people on the list that I could call. Right. And uh, so. Imagine I'm in solitary confinement, and, and at the time I was married, and I could only call my wife's phone number at the time. And she was always at work, and, coincid and, and funny enough, she worked at uh, General Telephone in Thousand Oaks. <laughs> yeah, so that, 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 that was pretty funny. But in any event, so um, when they would allow me to make a phone call, it was always during the day, so the guard would shackle my hands, shackle my feet, right. walk me over to this uh, room that had three payphones, and the payphones had... Their, the handset cords were quite long, and then the guard would take out this logbook. He'd say, "Who do you want to call?" And I'd tell him who I want to call. He would dial the number with a zero in front of it because it always had to be collect. And he'd hand me the phone, and he'd sit in the chair watching every move I made. Waiting, and then I was thinking, just waiting for you to whistle. No, no, no. Well, maybe, but <laughs> you know, it got even better than this because I figured I had nothing to lose. What else could they do to me? I'm in solitary confinement in a federal prison. There's, and I, it can't get any worse. So I figured, okay, mm. I'm going to try to beat their system. <laughs> so what I did is I would, you know, I pace back and forth when I was on the phone. I'd be scratching my back. I'd be rubbing my back against the payphone, you know, facing the guard. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. I really wanted to talk to my uh, to my wife at the time, who was actually at work. And then her number wasn't on the list. The work number wasn't on there. Mm. So, so basically, I put my hand behind the back, my back, and I, I, I hung up the switch hook, 
And I knew, then I put my hand in front of me and just acted like I was rubbing my back against the phone again. And I knew I had 18 seconds before it would start going to what they call a reorder, like a fast, busy tone, and right. I would hear it. Right. And then I reached back, you know, and back at me and acted like I was scratching my back, and I dialed zero plus, you know, the work number. And I was pretty good with using a touchstone pad. It wasn't that hard. Sure. And as I was walking, I acted like I was in conversation uh, because, uh, you know, because the operator was going to call, come on and say, who's the clock call from? So I'd say, well, you know, tell, you know, tell Uncle Mitchell that, that uh, Kevin said hi. Uh-huh. And when I said the word Kevin, that's when the operator's asking who the clock calls from. And I was able to do this, right? To call anybody that I wanted for like, you know, three to four weeks. And then one morning, about six in the morning, my cell door opens and it's the executives of the prison, the associate warden, like two of them, the captain, you know, I thought that, you know, maybe a family member had died. Something really serious was going on. Right. So they brought me into this room, and they sat me down. And then the captain, he's the head of security, goes, Mitnick, how are you doing it? And I go, <laughs> excuse me, how am I doing what? He says, well, we're monitoring your phone calls downstairs. We're actually recording all of them. You know, you do have notice about this. And somehow our officer is watching you every second <laughs> and you're somehow redialing the phone. How are yeah. you doing it? And then I remarked to him, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Do you think, you know, what do you think I am? David Copperfield? Right. Right. And, uh, yeah, they didn't like my sense of humor. So they, you know, you know, threw me back in the cell. And then a couple of days later, Pacific Bell was out and they were installing a phone jack in the hallway near my, where my cell was. Really? And I was thinking, are these guys stupid enough to actually, you know, put, put a phone in my cell that's like restricted to calling certain numbers? Apparently. That, that was what going through my head. They couldn't be that stupid. So when it ended up that I actually had to make a call, uh, it was a little bit different. The guard brought a phone, he plugged it into the jack, he dialed the number, and then put the handset uh, through the trap door, uh, you know, where they feed you in the cell. So the only thing I could touch was the handset. Right. So I kind of felt like Hannibal Lecter in the Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Man, what a story. That's a year in solitary. Yeah, like so I even was hacking from solitary confinement. All right, so uh, we we assume eventually somebody says, you know, we've got to make a deal with Mitnick, and they come to you and they cut a deal. Did you get away with time served? No. No? I actually, uh, uh, they they basically said, hey, deal with us. We'll let you out of solitary You'll you'll spend four more months in custody, and then and then you'll be you know you'll be out. So basically, I kind of had I I, I, I kind of got really tired of being in solitary. So I'd I'd, of I'd I'd admit I murdered JFK. It didn't matter. I didn't care. You know. So I just signed signed on the dotted line, and uh, and uh, and then that ended that that part of the story. Good. Um, and then so you were still in custody, but in Gen Pop. Right, right. They moved me over to this uh, place called Lompoc. It was a camp in, oh, in uh, yes. Lompoc, California, and I had to, you know, sit there. Actually, a nice place. Room. I hear it's quite nice. Yeah, they had you tennis courts, swimming pool. Got to meet some federal judges that were in there. It was kind of cool. Some senators. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah kind no of doubt. like the the creme de la creme of cr- criminals. Yes, <laughs> so of course. It was, it was quite interesting. All right, that was experience number one with the FBI, right? Uh, or, yes, or was yeah. that the only one? No, no, no. Then, uh, then I was uh, I was out on supervised release, and yes. I'm trying to you know, make a long story short. And uh, what had happened is uh, I, I kind of got out of hacking at the time. I was got into being a gym rat, so I'd be working out all the time. I kind of 
moved and moved my interest in working out and, and stuff like that and moving away from the hacking. And then uh, all of a sudden I had a horrific experience happen in my family. My, my brother, um, well, my half-brother, uh, he was found uh, dead in his, in his car on the passenger side in, you know, in a, in a bad area of Los Angeles. Oh so then I go, I, then I knew the cops weren't interested in really investigating this, that he would just be some sort of st- statistic. So, you know, and I was pretty close to my, you know, my brother at the time and I, and I, and I just had to find out what was going on. So I started, you know, getting in, back into hacking to get, uh, into the systems to find out, you know, to look at phone records that might help me identify or figure out what had actually happened to my half-brother. Wow. I mean, how did hacking help you do that? Well, I suspected somebody. We had somebody else in the family, actually an uncle, who was uh, uh, heavy into using heroin. And uh, we, I, I immediately thought, well, maybe my brother hooked up with my uncle and something was going on there. So the first thing I did was get the uh, what they called the call detail records of my uncle, my uncle's cell phone at the time, to get his location where sure. he physically was sure. and, at, at, during you know the last you know 48 hours and anybody that he called. So I was kind of um, becoming like a, a somewhat of a private investigator to figure out how you know what had happened in the, you know to my brother. Mm-hmm. Did you find out? Yes, I, unfortunately, you know, I, I found out my initial instinct was correct because uh, my uh, my half brother's um, well, my uncle's uh, f- former wife had, when he passed away, had come clean with the story that he was definitely the guy behind it and told me the entire story. So, unfortunately, right, right. I was my hacking skills didn't help me uncover that it was him at the time, but I found out later that, you know, that I was absolutely 100% spot on. Gotcha. All right. Hold tight. We're in a short break here. Count the hour. Kevin Mitnick is my guest. He's really something. As it goes on, you'll see what I mean. I'm Art Bell. This is Midnight in the Desert. When calling Midnight in the Desert, let the phone ring until answered. These calls are on the screen for your listening pleasure. Call 1-952-CALL-ART. That's 1-952-225-5278. Sure is true. We don't screen calls. No need to. Whatever comes, comes. You know, if it's really bad, I've got a button I can push and erase you. <laughs> it really sounds bad, doesn't it? Uh, listen, I wanted to do a fellow a favor, and so he emailed me the lumen thing that I use for my back. He can't seem to get the number, so I'm going to give it to him slowly. This thing actually works. It's the only thing that ever has. So are you ready? Got your pencil. He wrote me a long email about this. It is area code 828-863-4864. One more time. I hope you're writing this down, because I'm not going to do it again. Area code 828-863-4834. Like I say in the commercial, um, it's not cheap, but it works. And I, in all my life, nothing else has. So I use it every single day. All right. Um, you're back on, Kevin. Great to be back on your show. Um, all right. So... That was mix up one with the FBI. Uh, can we 
without ruining the story, jump to number two? Sure. You know, I was kind of explaining it before we went to break. And right. So what had happened is uh, we already talked about number one. The number two was a much longer and complicated story that started with uh, me getting back into the hacking, you know, to investigate why my brother was found uh, dead in a car. Right. And uh, and then I started, like, heavily getting back into this because it was just uh, just was kind of attractive to me at the time. Irresistible. And, why? Oh, it's irresistible. Yes. And uh, and I remember that uh, uh, that the government at the time had uh, uh, s- sent this guy, a uh, guy named Justin Peterson. His name was uh, also known as his fake name was uh, Eric Hines. They sent this guy who had been involved in credit card fraud and other uh, activity to to see what I was up to because they told them it would be a real feather in your cap if you can get some evidence that you know Kevin Mitnick is doing something wrong. So they they so, so they, actually they, they were they were they were still after you, uh, Kevin. I mean yeah yeah they were still after me. So I kind of figured it out kind of quickly, and then I started investigating the FBI and trying to figure <laughs> out what they were doing to the point where I hacked into. Pactel Cellular in Los Angeles, because back in those days... Listen, uh, I'm sorry to stop you. You're a little bit distorted. Now, I don't know whether you're speaking loudly and far from the mic, or you need to adjust the volume or something, but this time you began to get a little distorted, like you were hitting it too hard. Sorry about that. How's it now? Is that good? Yes, better. Um, Okay. Maybe I was just getting too excited. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, I understand. (laughs) And so they sent this guy to sort of make friends with you and see if he could get you. Exactly. So so what had happened is I, I kind of figured out what was going on kind of quickly. And to fast forward a little bit, I decided, well, I'm going to find out who who's investigating me and why they're doing it. So what I ended up doing is I hacked into Pacific Bell Cellular. And back in those days, there was only two cell phone providers in Los Angeles, L.A. Cellular and Pactel Cellular. And I was able to successfully get in. And the first thing I was looking at was the call detail records. That's the real-time, like, billing records to try to identify who has a cell phone, you know, that, it's, that's you know provided by their services provided by Pactel that calls this informant guy because I was able to figure out you know his home phone number and that's another story in itself mm-hmm. and um, and then I was able to identify these like five to six phone numbers that were calling him quite frequently and then I looked at their billing records and saw that they were calling internal numbers at the FBI so it wasn't hard to figure out that. The, the 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 cell phone numbers of the team of FBI agents that were working with this guy. So I set up this early warning system. I was working as a private investigator in in, in Calabasas, which is a suburb of LA, mm-hmm. and I set up this early warning system that basically using a a device like a radio scanner and using a particular software, I was able to monitor the cell site in Calabasas, uh, you know, over radio. Oh. to determine whether or not any of these cell phone numbers registered, which means that they're, they, they're, they're physically in the same location. So I set up this early warning system for the FBI, and nothing had happened. I kind of forgot about it, and about three weeks later, I walked into the office, and I heard this loud beeping coming from my 
office as I walked into it, and I go like, what's going on? This is weird. And I looked at the computer, and the early warning system had been tripped. Ah. And I go, oh, my God, you know, one of the numbers uh, came up. And I, and I knew who had the number because what these agents would do is they'd call their voicemail all the time. So I'd see this number that was constantly repeating. Yes. And so I called the voicemail, and then it would say, hello, you know, this is, you know, this is Ken McGuire with, you know, FBI squad, you know, <laughs> three or whatever. And then I knew the names that were attached to the cell phone numbers. So this guy, Ken, the guy uh, who was you know, the lead guy that was, uh, you know, kind of my hand ratty and, you know, catch me if you can. So this guy was uh, the lead guy trying to capture me or catch me doing something wrong. And so I, at the time, I, I looked at this, you know, capture, and two hours earlier when I was sound asleep, this guy, Ken, had called a payphone across the street from my apartment at the you know, market. And I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, why, why? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why is he calling a payphone? He's at my, in my, at my apartment. Right. Well, in you know the complex, two hours, and I'm sleeping. They know where I live. You know, why didn't they knock on the door? You know, what are they doing? They're not right. there to arrest me. So then, immediately, I realized what was going on is they were there to get a description of my apartment premises for a search warrant. And I go, oh, so that's what they're doing. So of course. You know, I immediately went home. I cleaned out anything that would be interesting to the government, you know, anything electronic. Sure. Sure. I put it over at a friend's house. And then because I was such a smart ass at the time, I decided to go over to the local donut shop. And I bought an assorted dozen donuts. And I wrote with a Sharpie on the box, FBI Donuts. I stick it in the refrigerator. Oh, and then on a piece of paper I, outside the refrigerator with a magnet, I, I put FBI Donuts inside, like with the Intel logo, how you used to say Intel inside or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I made it FBI Donuts inside. So <laughs> they actually raided me the next morning at 6 a.m. Uh, at 6 a.m., they, 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 you know, they were trying to the key into my door, but I opened it. And all these federal agents, you know, are, are, are storming into my apartment in my small one-bedroom apartment. And the only thing they found were the FBI donuts. They were pretty pissed. So oh. this is another reason why the government, I think, came down on me quite hard is because I was such a smart ass. And, well, and, okay. And well, I mean, things, right? okay, so um, they obviously, or did they arrest you on the spot? And so what no, for? They no, didn't. they didn't. Okay. No, they have no evidence that I was doing anything. You know, they had no concrete evidence. And, All right, uh, but after FBI yeah, donuts, yeah. they, they hated your guts even more. Uh, I think so. Yeah, okay. I think I ruffled a few feathers. All right. So then um, how did they eventually get you? Well, eventually, you know, you fast forward. I'm, you know, I, I lived in Denver, Colorado. I was working for a law firm, and then I left there. I went to Seattle and worked as a help desk analyst at a hospital there. And then eventually, uh, well, what happened in Seattle, I was nearly okay. caught. Back away a little more from the mic. Okay. You're getting very excited. Okay. <laughs> so I was I was living in Seattle and I was almost apprehended there and I was able to get away before they knew that it was Kevin Mitnick and that, that's a, again a longer story. Well, so wait, 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 wait. Why were they after you? In other words, if they didn't arrest you um, back in the donut days, uh, why are they now hunting you down like a dog? Oh, because at the time, you know, around the donut days, about a month later, they issued a warrant for my arrest for violating my probation. Because what they figured out that I, I had done is, again, you know, this is a real long story. I actually have a, a best-selling uh, memoir out there called Ghosts in the Wires. All these stories are inside there. But, okay, so what did you violate? Well, what, what had happened is uh, I, I, I routinely used to check 
to see if the uh, if I was being wiretapped. Okay. If you'd believe it. I do. And and what I used to do is use what we call the social engineering attack. I'd call the central office and I'd you know, impersonate security or something. And I would I would try to find out if they had certain types of devices in the central office. And then if they did, I'd have the, the frame tech technician go ahead and trace out the connections and, and give me the data. So basically I was able to call the central office to find out if, if the phone company had any active wiretaps going at the time. <laughs> so what I did is I called the Calabasas central office. I acted like I was a security. My, my, mm. my con was, was, hey, I'm with, I'm with this, uh, I'm with this, you know, I'm with the Pac Bell security and we, 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 we have an ca- ongoing case in Canoga Park and we need to know if we have any of our boxes over there because we're going to have to move them to Canoga Park for this investigation. So the frame tech goes offline and he says, oh yeah, we have three. And I go, oh my God, because at the time I was staying at my dad's apartment <sighs> and he had three phone lines. Right. Right. So what had happened is I, um, I had the frame tech, you know, trace these connections out and I realized the wiretaps weren't on me. They were on this private investigation company called Teltech Investigations. And so I was so ecstatic because I was so worried that I was being wiretapped, but it turned out to be on, on some other target. So I, 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 so I went home that night and I told my dad we're having dinner. And I said, hey, dad, I was checking to see if we had any wiretaps on the line, you know, over your know, normal conversation <laughs> over dinner. And my dad looks at me like I'm some nut, like like I'm living in some, like, spy novel that, you know, none of this is true. It's like a figment of my imagination mm-hmm. that was quite funny. And then I tell him, well, luckily it wasn't on us, dad, but there, it's kind of funny. It's on this PI firm called Teltech. And then what had happened is he goes, wait a second. I know the manager. He lives in this building. He's a friend of mine. So the guy... I named Mark, oh, so he invited them over, and I told him the story, and then immediately they offered me a job, and my job was to find out who was wiretapping them and why. Well, you already knew, right? No, I knew the phone company was doing it, but the phone company oh, was doing oh, it on behalf of a law enforcement uh, That's agency. right, of course, yes. Yeah, so, okay. Right? Yes, right? yes, so yes, yes. They wanted me to figure out what, what was going on, and uh, I said, hey, you know, that would be kind of interesting. Hmm. And so... When I was doing this, I, uh, you know, I, I did like, you know, kind of cool favors for, you know, f- for the, for this guy. Like I added special custom calling features you couldn't get at the time. <laughs> like, you know, caller ID. They didn't yeah. even have caller ID tariffed in, 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 in California. And I added it to this guy's line. And so when the phone company, you know, when they, when they figured out what was going on later, what, what, what the violation of probation was, was I was able to find out oh. the, the, Boy, the, the, the phone number of the law enforcement, uh, officer was a sheriff, a guy named, uh, David Simon, who was working the case against Teltech. And what I did is I hacked into this guy's voicemail. So basically right. I could find out the status of the investigation. Right. And, um, and, uh, that was the violation charge. Yeah, that sounds like a definite violation of yeah, your definitely. parole. But you know, the, the coincidence is this guy, David Simon, so, you know, much later, I'm commissioned to write my first book on social engineering, and it's called The Art of Deception. So uh, my agent finds me this co-author, and his name is Bill Simon. And we're sitting around talking about all these stories, you know, uh, you know about my past. And the funny thing is, this guy, David Simon, who I was monitoring for Teltech yes. investigations, yes. is his twin brother. <laughs> so, oh small bro- a small world. <sighs> okay, so um, you found out. They were after you again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so found out it was after me, and then, you know, again, it's a very long story, and then I became, you know, a, a fugitive, if you will. For so how, lo- living, how, how long? 
uh, about three years. Three years. So for three years you were moving from place to place to place, evading the FBI. It wasn't so hard. You know, I was really good at creating new identity. So I actually had, you know, good government identity. And my, my first identity was, you know, paying homage to Harry Houdini because my first cover identity was Eric Weiss. And that's, that's Harry Houdini's real name. <laughs> of course, the FBI had no sense of humor, but I thought it was quite funny. I'm sure you've learned by now, uh, from donuts to whatever, the, yeah, Harry they Houdini. Don't, they didn't like Harry Houdini. Right. They don't have a sense of humor. Government yeah. guys that, the ones that carry guns, no sense of humor at all. None at all. So anyway, so I was I was working a law firm in, in Denver, and I remember one of my jobs was well, one of my uh, duties in the law firm as a, as a system admin was actually you know how lawyers are they'll bill they'll bill you for using a paperclip. Uh-huh. So basically, they put me in charge of you know uh, maintaining the phone system to make sure that all the attorney calls were billed to the right attorney client matter. So basically what I did is I added my own covert code in the system that if anybody in the law firm had called the FBI in Denver or Los Angeles or the U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver or Los Angeles, they would send me a page to my pager. Uh-huh. And it actually, you know, tripped a couple times, but it, uh, you know, I got really nervous, but it turned out that it had nothing to do with me. It was the U.S. Attorney's Attorney's office in LA, but their civil division. So I used to set up all these early warning system type, uh, you know, schemes, if you will, to, you know, to basically protect, you know, myself when I was on the run. All right. Uh, skipping ahead because, you know, we have a lot to cover here. Um, how did the FBI get you the second time? Well, basically, um, we hacked in, uh, me and this other guy in Israel <laughs> hacked into this guy, Shuma, uh, Shuma, uh, Satomo Shimomura. And this guy was a, uh, was a security researcher that worked out of UC San Diego. Yes. And, uh, we thought, you know, at the time, we were very interested in the source code to the firmware on cellular phones. And what these were were trophies. So I hacked into a, you know many of the major cell phone companies to get the source code to the cell phone. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that I was trying to sell it or trying to do anything. I wasn't giving it away or publicizing it. It was simply as a, as a trophy. So we thought that this guy Shimomura, who was who had the source code to the Oki 900, which is a, it was a model of cell phone. Mm-hmm. So we went and came up with a novel way to break into his system and. Nobody knew it at the time. It was uh, using what we call, uh, uh, well, it, it, it was it was manipulating how TCP/IP worked uh, with mm-hmm. uh, with uh, sequence numbers, and I'm not going to get into the tech behind it. So, basically, using this novel attack, we're able to hack this guy, and 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 right away, I was like suspect number one. So, uh, Shimomura went on kind of like a vigilante mission to help the FBI capture me, as you know, because of course I drew first blood. And basically what had happened, if you fast forward, is they were able to identify a cell phone number I was using in Raleigh, North Carolina, and run out with radio direction-finding equipment to basically nab me. And mind you, when I was on the run, I always the first thing I would do is compromise the local, tele, uh, tele, the local telephone provider's infrastructure. So imagine I go to Raleigh. I already had control of all the phones in, in, in Raleigh. And what I what I did is I set up the cell phone number that I was using so you couldn't trace it back. So basically it would loop in the switch. They had these uh, switches, DMS-100 switches. And I basically said if they tried to trace the call, a tech 
yes. at the phone company. They couldn't do it. But Shima Moore was actually pretty smart. He did a thing. He, he basically said, well, we know Kevin is dialing into this Internet service provider called Netcom, uh, which was a popular Internet service provider back in the dial-up days. Yeah. So why don't we search the call detail records, kind of like what I did with the FBI a couple years earlier, and see if any phones, any cell phones in Raleigh are calling the dial-up numbers. So that's how they were able to identify the phone I was using, because I used to change my cell phone number every day. Um, so that's how they were able to go uh, go about that. We went out with radio direction finding gear and found the apartment where I was living under a cover identity. And they couldn't trace what apartment it was. So around, I, I, again, I was a gym rat at the time, so I used to go working out at night all the time. So I, I, I arrived home about 12, 12.30, 1 a.m., and immediately I went online, you know, to start, you know, my hacking stuff. Yes. And I just had a weird gut feeling in my stomach that something was seriously wrong. Kind of just, like a, kind just, of like a deer just before it's going to yeah, get Yeah, yeah, just down. like something really bad's going to happen. <laughs> yes. So I walk outside my apartment and over, I could see the parking lot and I scan the cars in the parking lot because I just, I just have this overwhelming, you know, uh, fear. And then I go back in the apartment. Well, it turned out that when they traced the radio signals, it went to the other side of the apartment. But because I, because I went outside and it looked suspicious at 1.30 in the morning that some guy is looking at the cars in the parking lot and goes back in his apartment, that's how the uh, U.S. Marshal that was on the team to apprehend me actually saw me, and that's how they were able to nab me. So they were probably afraid you made them. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they, they nabbed you. you. Yeah. Um, it, this is the local sheriff? No, it was the FBI. FBI, okay. All right, you go to trial for what? I didn't go to trial for anything. Essentially, I was arrested. I was put back into solitary confinement. Back Uh, into solitary. And then I was, uh, you know, pretty much on this long road of uh, dealing with the federal government for, you know, a number of years and uh, uh, ended up being, you know, sent back to Los Angeles. And uh, I sat in federal custody without a trial for about four and a half years we finally uh, settled the case with the government, and uh, I, I, I ended up having to do about 10 more months in custody, and, uh, and then that case was over. Then, then basically that, that's kind of you know, my, my troubles with the law at the time. And that is, uh, so you, you've been how long in jail, second time? Five years. Five, five years? Five my years. My God. Uh, was it in general population this time, or again were well, you? Again, I was in solitary initially until we agreed to um, certain uh, requests of the government. One of them was to go through a CIA debriefing because the government had, had thought again that uh, that I somehow hacked into CIA systems. And, and and when I agreed to do the debriefing, basically on my own activities, they basically never did it. What I learned is the. Uh, the CIA used to have computers supplied by Digital Equipment Corporation, and since I had thoroughly compromised DEC's internal network and had access to everything, they were afraid that I was going to put some code into the operating system to gain access to intelligence computer systems. So uh, I never did that, never was planning on it, but that was the fear. So basically I ended up, you know, in custody. No, I I was hacking. I I was breaking the law. I I thought it was... uh, a little bit overboard, uh, some of the, you know, like holding me in solitary confinement for, you know, potentially lo- launching nuclear weapons. But, you know, but I'm, I'm so happy that I'm able to put all this stuff behind me. I mean, you know, this was like, 
you know, I look at this as that all this is behind me, and I get to kind of do the same thing. As I, 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 I mentioned uh, to the audience that now you hack for the Lord. Right. <laughs> no, I actually, I get, yeah, it's kind of like Pablo Escobar becoming a pharmacist, right? So basically, companies hire me and my team to basically compromise their physical security, their technical security, basically everything's security to find whether or not they're vulnerable so they could shore up their defenses uh, so they could, you know, resist a real bad guy coming along later yes. and protect themselves that way. And so you are employed in that manner now? I have my own company. So basically companies hire my company to do what we call, it's called penetration testing or ethical hacking. Right. And basically... It, it, and, it, and it's so interesting. It's, you know, every time I'm dealing with a client, it's a new puzzle. And it's almost like it's not work. It's actually a, a, a very enjoyable and fun job. And when I started hacking, it was all for the intellectual curiosity, the challenge, the pursuit of knowledge, especially. And so it wasn't about making money or causing damage like you, you hear about these days. Yeah, but so, not, not from their point of view. Right. So. So now, you know, I get to kind of do the same thing I was doing before and have that enjoyment, but at the same time earn a living. So mm. it's kind of a, a, a cool turnaround. If make, you will. make any good friends in prison? No. No. I, I, uh, not, not really. I mean, uh, trying to think of who I met that was interesting. Well, that's uh, all right. I, I don't really yeah. want to go I, there anyway. I just... No plan. No, yeah. not at all. All right. All right. Uh, so now uh, you are up. On current hacking. Yes. Uh, this is pretty weird. I'm getting a, a weird thing. You're not sending this, are you? New video message received. Play at blah, 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 www dot blah, blah, decline. Weird. Uh, I, I wouldn't click that. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Um, okay, so now you're up on the current sort of state of the world hacking-wise, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean... Uh... What we cover is mostly on the security testing side. And, All right, so let, let, let's talk about some current stuff, like, for example, Sony. I mean, that was really, really bad, what happened to Sony, and for, for that matter, the White House, too. Um, so with regard to those two hacks, do you uh, – the government, of course, blamed China. Maybe no, North Korea. Oh, North – I'm sorry, North Korea. That's right, uh, because of that stupid movie. Um you know, interview. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, actually a semi-funny movie. I enjoyed I it. I watched it. it on YouTube, but uh, I, I kind of skeptical of whether it was really North Korea because I really believe that uh, Sony, you know, uh, they have s so much internet, you know, properties, if you will, that it really wouldn't be that hard to hack into their network. Yeah, I, I, I think it was. I think it was China for the White House, right? That they blamed. Oh yeah, well, every time you hear about a hack on a on 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 a national security issue, it's always China or North Korea. It's it's gotten to the point that every unsolved hack has to be China. Now, mind you, I don't have access to the information the NSA has, so they might have, you know, access to certain information or knowledge that they have that you know squarely places the blame on North Korea. But personally, I haven't seen anything, you know, through any transparency on the government's part. To actually prove that's the case. Well, so they, prob I, I they probably it's, wouldn't it's give it out. Well, you know, why not? I mean, if they have evidence that it was them, why well, not? Well, because, because uh, you know, even that might show their capabilities. So at least that's what they can claim. 
Yeah, maybe if they're reading Kim Jong Un's email, <laughs> they, don't, they don't want to tell the public about it. I could understand. Um. All right. So you don't necessarily think it was uh, North Korea. I don't know. I really don't don't know. know. Again, I'm skeptical because I know how easy it would probably be to hack into Sony. And in fact, when the hackers, you know, did this like, you know, doxing, you know, what doxing is, is where they hack into a target and just expose all their, you know, internal information. Right. Um, There were some documents in there that, um, uh, that showed that Sony's internal security wasn't really up to par. And, and mind you, the CEO, Michael Linton, of Sony Pictures, his domain password to get his email, like, remotely, like... like uh, Don't give it out. In, you know, don't I can give, give it to you. It's changed. It was okay. Sony, S-O-N-Y, M-L, which is his initials, followed by a three. Oh, so no. you kind of wonder, like, how can this guy pick such a stupid password? I mean, I already know, like, the pattern. I'm sure next month it would have been ML4, the one after that, ML5. So they really had sloppy security, and uh, and so it's not surprising if if, if it, it would be surprising if anybody couldn't hack them. To be honest with you, my God, that's lax. Um, I, I mean, I yeah. I worked for a company a couple of years ago. They sent me a computer, and with it came a key fob. And this key fob would come up with a new uh, security code for each time you would have to log in. I, I'll tell you, I hated it so much. I sent him back the computer and the key fob, and I said, I don't want anything to do with your system. Send me a laptop, plain old, plain Jane, Windows 7 laptop, and you can take yours and make other use of it. Well, with that key fob, that key fob actually I know. is a good idea. I know. I know. And, and people like you, I know. You, know you, you don't want to be inconvenienced. That's the mistake people make, and, and then they get hacked. I know. Now, I do uh, use programs to keep very close control of, you know, any possible problem. But What programs are those? Well, I, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've got a lot of computers, and uh, I'm not sure I should be giving out information on that kind of thing. Frankly. You're running Windows 7. <laughs> um, yes, and I'm being invited to uh, to get Windows 10, by the way. Should I do that or should I not? Where's the link coming from? Your, your personal opinion. Oh, it's coming from Microsoft. Uh, I'll give it a shot. I, I, I've, I've heard good things about Windows 10. Actually, um, I have too, to be honest with you. I have. Uh, Windows 8, yeah, not so much, but yeah, Windows, yeah. Windows 10 get pretty good rep. Um, all right, hold it right there. We'll be right back. I'm Art Bell. I know you can see me. Now here's a surprise. I know that you have, because there's magic in my eyes. Take a ride from the high desert and the great American Southwest. This is Midnight in the Desert, exclusively on the Dark Matter Digital Network. To call the show, dial 1-952-CALL-ART. That's 1-952-225-5278. Now, you may have thought that sounded strange, but that was just your provider dropping packets on you. No. (laughs) That was Ross. Happens to me once a night at least. 
Welcome back, everybody. Kevin Mitnick is my guest. I'm Art Bell. We're talking about hacking, actually. And uh, here he is once again. So this uh, half hour, I, you know, people really want to call. I've got to cover a lot of territory with you on new stuff. And by the way, somebody sent uh, a message, Kevin, that says, Art, Windows 10 is good. But he says, um, thank you, Keith, or whoever this is. Uh, you no longer are able to play DVDs. It erases the feature, and you have to buy a program to keep watching DVDs. True or false? Hmm. Hmm. Not, not sure on that one. I never, mm. I never, I never heard of that one. Okay. You have to buy a program to keep playing DVDs. Well, that's that's what he says. You know, I get messages on a computer as I do the show, and that's what he's saying. Okay, let's go to the next one. I, yeah, I, I don't like that. Um, all right, maybe it's not true. Maybe he just had trouble. You know, it could be. Um, all right, so. <sighs> I keep getting these calls, and so it's got to be one of the latest things from Microsoft. Hello, an Indian voice says to me, uh, I'm from Microsoft, and the last time your computer booted up, uh, we detected a virus. And then they would have you go to your computer and go through all kinds of gyrations, um, uh, which lead inevitably to something horrible. Now, I, I never let it go that long. My friend Paul... Uh, he gets these calls as well, and uh, he took one of the guys, and he kept him going, I think, for about an hour, maybe an hour and ten minutes, you know, playing dumb, like, uh, uh, would you please go to run? I can't find run. You know, I mean, just really giving the guy... Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I had the same thing happen, and I actually posted the audio to my website, uh, where this <laughs> yeah. guy from the... Support, uh, he, I think he called it the Windows Support Center. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and the guy was calling from India, obviously. Oh, yeah. And he was telling me that they keep getting messages, my computer's infected. That's right. And then he was trying to step me through the process of uh, right. trying to clean up the infection. So I, I, I kept this guy on the line going for a while, and then I, I had to actually go to an appointment I had, but I actually recorded it. And I'm looking for it on my website where I posted it. It's actually quite funny. Right, Paul, um, Paul did that, but after an hour and ten minutes, he told the guy, oh, I've got Apple. <laughs> uh, what happened is the guy called him back and called him every name in English that he could think of and his family and everything else and then every Indian uh, curse word he could hurl at him. And I think called him twice. Uh, he was so angry. <laughs> oh, well. If you go along with this, uh, and you you do as they say, they're going to inject a virus into your system, uh, and it's probably a pretty serious one. Uh, is that the one where you've got to pay to get your computer back? Um, no, that's ransomware. So what these guys will do is they'll use a program. Uh, they'll have you install a program so they can connect to your computer. Yes. And um, and then what they'll do is they'll go ahead and you know right in front of you. Download some malicious, you know, software to your computer and basically then try to sell you a product that cleans up the infection. So it's basically a money making scam and it's been going on for, uh, for quite some time. Ransomware is different is this is a type of malware that will encrypt your files or will pretend to encrypt your files and it will require you to pay a ransom 
to unlock your files, you know, using, you know, using cryptography, if you will. Right. They'll encrypt the files. And if you don't do it, you don't get access to your files. Even There's even one case where there was a police uh, department, I forgot exactly where in the United States, that actually was hit with this ransom where they actually paid the ransom. Wow. Yeah. All right, so is it, is, it, I don't know. Yeah, is it actually so serious, uh, Kevin, that, uh, or is there a, a, if you get hit with this ransomware thing, is there a way around it, or is it so tight you've got to actually pay? Well, you have to think about how do you get hit with this stuff, and usually the way the way you get hit with it is the bad guys are using, you know, typical social engineering, which is, you know, using spear phishing attacks or phishing attacks. So what they do is they trick you as the user into doing something like, Opening up a file that's sent right. in an email right. that contains the infection, or you know, clicking on a yeah, hyperlink. No, I, okay, so I, 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 I get all that. If people don't do this, they're not going to get infected. Yeah, I, I get all that. The, my question was, if you are infected with this and they want money, is there a way to get around it and get your system back, or do you have to pay? Well, I actually had a client call me that was infected with malware and uh, infected with this ransomware. Yes, and what the ransom was was 500 bucks. So I told the client, I said, it's much cheaper just to pay the, the ransom. And that's exactly what they did. They got all their files back. Wow. Um, you know, in some cases, it depends on, on, on how much the ransom is. And, and what people really need to do is start backing up their data. I mean, if they back it up and, you know, uh, and, you know, secure that backup, then even if they get infected with the ransomware, they could just restore the files and, and be done with it. Okay. Um, so there might be a way around it, but it might be too expensive depending on how much. Well, it depends. You know, there's different types of ransomware that, you know, some is fake where it's not even encrypting your files. Right. Some, sometimes, you know, in, in most cases it's real, but a consumer usually can't, you know, figure that out on themselves. They're going to need to know somebody that's pretty technically astute to be able to determine if it is in fact real. Um, so it really depends. What you really need to do is find, like, some expert that could help you out if that ever, ever happens to you to, to find the best course of action. Okay. I'm not saying that you just pay the ransom at all times. In this particular case with this client, I just recommended it. Okay. I formed a friendship, sort of, with a guy from Anonymous. In fact, I had him on the air. And we talked a little bit about Anonymous. Now... He doesn't technically say he's in Anonymous, but if you read between the lines, you know, he probably is. And uh, so he's sort of a consultant of mine from Anonymous, sort of. Would you think that's a wise idea or unwise? Well, I mean, Anonymous is not really, it's, it's kind of like a way that people think. It's like anybody can kind of jump on this bandwagon of, of you know. No, this guy's a real McCoy. Oh, he's the real McCoy. Yeah. So I, I actually think, you know, doing, you know, some of the, the, the stuff they're doing is kind of a bad idea because it actually doesn't, you know, they get a little bit of uh, PR, you know. So if they hack into some police department and expose mm. the officers' homes address, home addresses, for example, right. they get the PR, but they are never able to use that to get what they want. All In right. other words, it, it, they just never advance their agenda. All right. There is, there is... Something on the internet that's below the internet. Uh, you might call it the internet. You might call it the dark net. What do you know about that? Well, the dark net is like a kind of. Uh, have you ever heard of Tor, George? Like uh -huh. the Tor network. It's a kind of a. 
Don't oh, don't cuss at me. <laughs> well, the dark net. Let's just say there is a way to. Access I'm I'm Art. The... Yes, I know about tour. Oh, okay, great. So <laughs> perfect. So you know, the dark web. It's kind of like you know, uh, it, it's like these hidden services through tour. Yes. And there's a lot of you know illegal uh, activity that occurs in these services, like with these services, like selling stuff that. It, is illegal, you know, fake identities, for example, drugs. Yeah. If you recall, the guy that was running Silk Road, yes. uh, Dread, uh, was a Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, Ross Ubert, he was, uh, you know, actually caught even though, you know, he was using a Tor hidden service. So there's a lot of uh, things you could, well, a lot of uh, services and information that you could buy yeah. on the dark web that, yeah. you know, is stolen data. Okay, well, if you look up uh, a dark net, um in search of information on the net. Interestingly, one of the responses you get is, the dark net is full of criminals and government agents. And I'm thinking, how do you tell the difference? Really can't. I mean, uh, <laughs> in, in the case of the Silk Road investigation, apparently uh, uh, Ross uh, Ubert had um, an administrator that was part of, you know, ad- administrating Silk Road, and he was actually an undercover DEA agent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you really vet somebody's identity on the Internet? It's extremely difficult. And is there really a substantial difference between some criminals and government agents? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm not going to answer that question. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, maybe better not. Um, all right, so uh, this following question comes from a movie. Okay. Uh, but uh, I can't resist. Could there ever be a fire sale? Could there ever be one? Um, I doubt it. I, I know what movie you're talking about. You're yes. talking about Die Hard, right? Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Die Hard. Or actually, what? no. It was a later one. But but the point is, a fire sale. Let's explain it. Uh, fire sale. Everything must go right and. Uh, and so in in this case, we're talking about uh, a foreign power or a, a domestic agent of some kind disabling everything. And that means streetlights, power, water, communications, uh, you name it. Um, disabling, you know, just attacking everything, a fire sale. I know what you're saying. I, I, I think it's far-fetched because you'd have to – the attackers would have to compromise a, such a great deal of a number of systems – and remain undetected. Uh, uh, now, mind you, remember when I, in the back in the 80s and 90s, when I compromised a lot of the telephone companies around the United States, yes. I had complete control of a lot of switches, you know, at the time. But each, each, you know, set of prefixes required compromising a different switch and doing it and staying undetected and and um, and and something like that. So it is. Um, I think it's a little bit far. I, I think it's pretty far fetched. Okay. Yeah, that's stuff. That's stuff that uh, writers put in movies. Well, maybe, uh, but you know, you start hearing about some of the incredible hacks. What did they? I, I think they believe that China got the names and IDs and socials of like OPM. You're talking about the Office of Professional Management. Yeah, how, ma- how many was it? Millions, right? It was millions. But not only that, um, what the attackers were able to get in this is allegedly China. Was access to, you know, you know, people's tops, you know, when people go for a secret clearance, right? They get the, all their psych backgrounds, their yeah. family backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. Now, 
So the social security number is, you know, really easy to get. You know, I, I can look up anyone's social security number in 60 seconds on the internet, but the attack on OPM was much, much more, much more personal data that, uh, that was compromised and actually could be leveraged by a foreign national. Um, let's talk about people's privacy. I mean, the privacy of the people listening to this show right now. If you really, really need privacy, is PGP any good? And that PGP, of course, means pretty good privacy. Now, uh, that was written and was said to be unbreakable. I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. Is that now still true or not true? No, I, I think uh, PGP is definitely a tool that people could use. It's, you know, ordinarily, you know, it's used to, you know, you know obviously send, you know, to secure your email. Uh, the problem is, you know, in configuration, normally the average person on the street can easily configure uh, setting up, you know, what they call a private key and a public key, and then they have to get the person that they're communicating with to do the exact same. And there's actually a, a free version of uh, PGP called GPG right. that, and, you know, anybody can download. And it actually is a good way to definitely secure your email. Now, mind you, when you send an email to somebody, you have to have their public key. Well, one thing you have to make sure is that when you're sending, like if I'm sending, you know, an email to Art Bell, that I really have your public key, that it's not somebody else impersonating you. Well, all right, look, let's define by who it's impossible. In other words, uh, the average person, the average even corporation perhaps could not decrypt it. But if NSA wanted it, I assume they'd be able to read it. I don't know of any uh, known attacks on uh, that the NSA is using, at least according to the Snowden revelations, where they were able to crack PGP encrypted email. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know. In fact, just the opposite. I mean, some documents that Snowden released, it, 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 I remember there, there were some communications between G, GCHQ and NSA that they couldn't decrypt information that was protected using PGP. By the way, how did, how did you like the way Snowden addressed the NSA by saying, can you hear me now on uh, Twitter? <laughs> I thought it was great, yeah. and I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. It's like the only person he follows on Twitter is the NSA. So that's kind of like an in-your-face type of uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, behavior there. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of chuckled. I'm actually... Yeah, I'm curious of what security precautions he's taking to access Twitter. <laughs> so. Who knows? <laughs> um, I, I mean, they know he's in Russia. I, I'm sure they probably know where he is anyway. So um, if you were to give uh, Ed Snowden any advice, what would you uh, advise him in his current position? Oh, I, I would definitely advise Ed Snowden that it would probably be a serious mistake uh to come back to the United States. I think if he did, no matter what the U.S. government would promise him, yes, right, that they would actually put him in the ADX Florence, which is a, uh, it's like the most secure federal prison in uh, Florence, Colorado, and he would sit there, you know, in solitary confinement for the rest of his life. I wouldn't trust that they would really make any real deal with him. I think they would actually lie to him to get him back uh, to the U.S. unless he had access to some information that the government doesn't want made public that he could use as leverage. Otherwise, I don't see any leverage he really has um, in, in that regard. So I think if you know he's captured or voluntarily returns back to the United States, I can't really imagine that he wouldn't be locked up in a in a again in ADX Florence for a very long time. 
All right. Well, you you understand. Yeah, that's, my, that's my opinion. You understand that half the country thinks he's a hero. Half the country oh, thinks no, he is a um, a spy, or, or not a spy. A spy is the wrong word. Uh, a criminal, right? Yeah. Public opinion doesn't matter with respect to Snowden because even in my case, when you know they had no. this big free Kevin campaign about you know all the crazy things that were happening in my case. And it didn't, it, it, I mean, it, it raised awareness work. with the public, but the courts don't care. The U.S. Department of Justice doesn't care. Um, but, you know, it, it would be nice if he can come back into the United States and uh, they could, you know, pardon him, uh, you know, grant him a presidential pardon. That would be nice. But I can't imagine that the Department of Justice would simply just cut him a deal. That would be reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, how do you view him? Well, I, I'm actually happy about, you know, uh, I, I view him as a hero, that he was, you know, exposed that the intelligence agencies in the United States were eavesdropping on us without, without a court order, without a warrant, and basically analyzing all communications. Um, I don't think, though, he should have revealed our operations against foreign governments. I think he should have kept that secret and, you know, kept it to himself. But I, I do, I don't view him as a traitor. I view him more as a whistleblower hero type than anything else. Okay. Well, um, then about half the country agrees with you, and the other half violently not so. Uh, right. And so you, overall, your advice is, Ed, stay out of the country. Well, that'd be Canadian yeah, advice. I, I think so. I mean, um, I kind of seen how the government works firsthand. You know, dealing with them for a number of years. Yes. And I went, I went trusted. You know, and, and you know, I, I think you know because of the information that you know he exposed that they would probably do any. I mean, they brought down a presidential plane. Uh, uh, the president of Bolivia was flying through European airspace. You know, uh, what uh, I don't know if it was a year ago or I don't remember the exact date, and they forced him to land in Austria. Oh, Just because they thought that. Snowden was on the plane. Yeah, yeah, right? I remember. So, don't you think that's uh, indicative that the U.S. government would go to great lengths to, uh, you know, to get him? Probably lucky that plane didn't get shot down. Yeah, well, that would have been a pretty, uh, a pretty big horror if it did. So, um, yeah, I don't think they would have gone that far. Well, there's no shortage of horrors going on. That's for sure. Um, I'm worried about the whole world right now, frankly. All right, we're going to take a break. I might have a question or two more, and then I would like to take some calls. Are you up for that? I'm up for it. Good. Then stay right there. My guest is Kevin Mitnick, and he's been a bad boy, and now he's a good boy, and that's only for the Lord. I'm Art Bell, and this is Midnight in the Desert. Digital Network. This is Midnight in the Desert with your host, Art Bell. Now, here's Art. Here I am. 
And uh, my guest is Kevin Mitnick. Now, if you would like to speak to Kevin, if you've got a question for Kevin about perhaps your computer privacy, or maybe you've got a question about, uh, I don't know, just about your computer, or if you've got a company, maybe you would like to hire Kevin to try and break in. I mean, that is what they do, after all, uh, and that is what Kevin does now. He's on the right side of the law, and he identifies uh, vulnerabilities, you know, in people's business systems, and this is their livelihood, so it's very, very important stuff. If you would like to call, our public number is 1, area code 952-225-5278. I'll give that to you again. Area code 952-225-5278. Now, there is another way to call. It's called Skype. If you have, eh, I don't know, an iPhone, an Android, whatever, a pad, put Skype on it. And once you've done that, oh, it's so easy. Go to add a contact, little plus sign in Skype, and add us. If you're in North America, America or Canada, Add MITD51. MITD51. If you are outside of the United States, we can accommodate you as well. It's MITD55. Midnight in the Desert. MITD55. All right. Uh, here once again is uh, Kevin. And uh, Kevin, before we take calls, I do want to ask this. Uh, is it safe? Uh, and are you hidden sufficiently if you use what's called a proxy? No. No? No, because the service you're using, the proxy service, they have your IP address. Right. Now, if you could you if you uh, could connect to the initial connection to the internet per se, if you could conceal or, or, or disconnect that IP address from being associated with you. For example, by using like a neighbor's Wi-Fi uh, access point, you know, then you know it, it probably is a lot safer. But if you just simply use a proxy, it's not going to really uh, law enforcement could subpoena the you know the logs and find out where you are. That's the same true. thing is with VPN. I hear a lot about uh, VPN providers that say we keep no logs. You know. Right. Even if we're subpoenaed by, you know, federal law enforcement agencies, we can't tell them anything about you. Right. I think that's a hundred percent BS. Okay. Because working in the IT industry, there's always you always need to have logs when you're troubleshooting problems. And I can't imagine that these big name VPN providers actually really turn it off. So, yeah, you know, again, you know, to really get a good level of privacy, you might think about well, getting a burner device. You know, like uh, like a cell phone or a burner uh, wireless access point, uh, and then not using that near your normal home or work if you really want to ma- maintain your anonymity. But then, how do you go about buying it? Do you walk into Verizon or T-Mobile and go buy that device? No, because you're on camera. Hmm. You know, you go into you, you have to actually think about every step of the way. Do you use Uber to go over to Walmart to buy it? No, because you know your Uber, you know your 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 movements are tracked. Do you use a rent a car? No, because they have GPS. So you have to really think about how are you getting the device you're using. Is it a truly a, a safe way of obtaining it? Like, um, or is it really traceable? 
And then how, where do you actually use that device? I'm talking about a device to connect to the Internet, like yes. a, you know, a prepaid wireless phone or a prepaid you know, hotspot. Uh, you know, how do you acquire it, and where do you use it from? And then how do you use it? Do you access, like if you're doing like, stuff you want to maintain your anonymity, are you crossing that with your, the stuff that you're doing in real life, like right. checking your email, right. checking your Twitter account, going onto sure. Facebook? And there's so many ways people could make a mistake and, and get caught up and, you know, and their real identity be identity, you know, All and right. their, really, uh, their real identity be exposed. All right. Very quickly. Your favorite operating system, uh, would you prefer Mac, Linux, or Windows? VMS. <laughs> really? VMS is an operating system made by DEC okay. uh, that I actually got the source code for. But uh, I, that used to be my favorite. Uh, I, I like I like uh, I like Linux-based operating systems. I like Ubuntu. I like Gen2. I like OS X. I like Macs. Okay. Um, yeah, but I use them all. All right, all right. Uh, phones: Android, iOS, or Windows Phone. I, I like iOS. I like iPhone. You um, really do. You you yeah. like iPhones. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I prefer, me too. I prefer, I prefer iOS. Um, what, why I, I do think you... they're actually more secure than, you know, Androids. You're hearing about uh, vulnerabilities identified in Android all the time. Now, then again, you hear about jailbreaks, you know, jailbreaks that are identified in iOS. So both operating systems, you know, have their share of security vulnerabilities. But I do like the iOS model better. All right. Like, well, for example, if I'm installing an app, yes. right, and it, uh, you know, an Android will ask you, now, do you want to give this app all these permissions? And then yes, once right. you do it, it never asks you again. Right. When you do that with an uh, with an iPhone or an iPad, every time you're doing that function, like it wants your location, right. it's going to ask for your permission every time. Mm. Um, now, Android is running some sort of anti-Apple ads showing that Apple Pay seems not to work. You know, the person is swiping around and they can't get it to work, whereas Android just pays it off, boom, like that. Um, are you a fan, number one, of these pay systems? Are they fairly secure, more secure than, you know, a credit card, for example? Uh, and number two, is it really true that Apple's pay system is having a problem? Well, I, I haven't actually used Apple Pay personally, but I've, no, read, I. I, I've read documents on it, and it seems reasonably secure, you know, where the, where they're of how they, you know, have it, have it, have they use their like protocol, if you will. Right. Um, but I actually haven't tried to uh, attack Apple Pay yet, you know. And I'm curious of whether, you know, there's room to do, you know, if they tokenize the information so you're like uh, your no, credit no, no, card no, no, number. Wait. Did you say use Apple Pay or attack Apple Pay? Attack. I haven't tried attacking yes. it as part of like a security test. I see. So I'm not sure personally whether or not you know, uh, of any vulnerabilities in Apple Pay to date. Okay. Um, you do good work for companies, right? That is what you do, and I want to give you a chance to, you know, promote that. You have this ghost team, right, that claims to have a 100% success rate of being able to penetrate any system using technology and any social engineering you can use technology and social engineering. You can get in any system out there. How can it be 100%? Well, basically, there's different types of security tests that companies have us do. There's uh, network testing to look at, you know, what are they, ex- you know, what network services they're exposing to the Internet that could possibly be attacked. A company could have web applications, like when you log on to, like, Bank of America, for example, right. you're using a web application. But, you know, so there's different types of security issues. When clients allow us to use social engineering, that means when we could try manipulating the humans 
<laughs> that actually operate the computers yes. and con them into doing something or exploit them that way, our success rate's 100%. And it has been since we started with the company. Now, mind you, if a if a client wants us to, you know, test, you know, their uh, their uh, a web app, you know, we we don't have a hundred percent success rate at you know at compromising a web app. We have a high success rate, but always when we're allowed to use social engineering, we always get in. All right, because all, right. It, describe, yeah, all we have to do is find one person. Yes, describe the company. Yes, describe for it. describe in detail. Well, not that much detail, but as much as you can. If you were given permission, let's say a large company, to go after them with social engineering, how would you do it? Well, basically, what I had to do is first get a target list. You know, you know, who in the company, you know, would I be targeting with this attack? I might, you know, move out, move over to LinkedIn. A lot of, you know, uh, business people use LinkedIn, they you know, do. social, you know, the, you know, the social network LinkedIn, and you sure. can kind of identify the individual, you know, individuals that work at companies, their titles and positions. You could use, you know, Salesforce has data.com, which gives you uh, an, another, uh, you know, another way of getting that type of information. So you're basically kind of building your, your, your target list. And then what I would do is look at, well, what does this business do? You know, who are their customers? Who are their suppliers? You know, who, who are their partners? And then come up with a, an attack, come up with a situation that I would manufacture to get somebody on the inside to comply with a request, for example, to open up, like, imagine that I'm, um, uh, uh, Imagine that I'm a, you know, a new client or, you know, or that I'm going to hire a law firm, for example. The law firm is the target. And I know that the attorney will want to read some documents about the issue or about the case. What if I could send a booby trapped uh, PDF file to a partner at the law firm? And as soon as they open up that, uh, that, that PDF file, it exploits right. a problem with Adobe Acrobat. And then I have full access to that uh, lawyer's system. So that's like you know a one simple way that social engineering could be used to attack a system. Okay, but you you do admit that uh, just doing it with computers and trying to make it through firewalls does not always work. What 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 say that again, Dirt? I said just using computers and trying to make your way through firewalls does not always work. Does not always work, but when we're testing web applications, you know, companies have web applications that are facing the internet. Sure. Our success rate is in the, in the very high 90s. Yeah. But if somebody is saying, hey, test our wireless network and they've deployed it properly, you know, they're using, you know, proper, proper security technologies, then we might not get in. Or, you know, or if they're having us look at what network services are being exposed by, you know, their servers to the internet, you know, if they're not exposing certain types of uh, applications, if you will, that we could possibly exploit, then we're not going to get it. All right. I want to take a few few calls here, if I can. Uh, If they want to get in touch with you for work, how do they do that? They can go to uh, our website. It's Mitnick Security. That's M-I-T-N-I-C-K security.com. Okay. All right. Let's go to uh, Quake Guy on Skype. Hello. Oh, hey there, Art. How am I sounding? I'm sounding all right. All right. Much appreciated for the guest tonight. Uh, It's really a pleasure to ask Kevin some questions. Awesome program tonight. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, Kevin uh, one or two quick questions. Uh, I have a bit of a background in um, computers, uh, mainly due to my father. 
He got MCSE certified in the early 90s, Cisco certification and all that. And uh, I kind of kick him in the butt now and again for not getting me more into it because I'm on my computer more or less, far more than I should be. Hmm. I have a typing WPM of like 120 words a minute plus, and I've always wanted to know where I can start uh, amateurly uh, without spending ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year on a university degree. Where are you grabbing your uh, network security guys, your your uh, server security guys? How can somebody who who has the the drive, has the will, and, and wants to get into this sort of thing, where do they start? Well, you know what what we actually look for is when you know people are in, you know in are interested in working with security is what's their experience like for example as a developer like if we're looking for somebody that's going to assess the security of web applications what's their development experience and what technologies you know .net java you know what what background do they have in uh, systems and network administration and and uh, working uh, you know as a DBA not actually working as a full-time job but actually have knowledge in these areas of you know how things work and then looking to you know you know, there's a lot of, you know, universities that offer security degrees. I know you already said you're not interested in going the university route. You know, I'm kind of self-taught myself, you know, from you know, being a hacker back in the day. But there's lots of, you know, good resources out there on the Internet you might want to look at. There's a lot of, you know, I remember there was some best-selling book on beginning pen, uh, penetration testing on Amazon. I didn't actually... Get, look at the book myself, but actually looked at the reviews, and the reviews were pretty high. You might want to consider uh, looking at that and, lo- and downloading tools like Metasploit. Metasploit is a very, very common uh, penetration testing uh, you know, framework, if you will, and becoming familiar with a lot of the tools like Metasploit and Nmap, uh, and you know, kind of you know going around to different. Uh, you know, sites on the internet and learning a lot about, you know, security and uh, looking at, you know, what, what, what tools and what techniques and uh, processes you go through to actually, you know, test security controls on various operating systems, devices, and so on and so forth. Either um, all of that color or if you want to impress Kevin, spend a year in your bathroom without coming out. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, one other quick question, if I may. Do you happen to have any of this sort of information, these recommendations, uh, listed anywhere online, or would it be all right uh, if I went through your um, company and, and sent an email asking for, sure. for such recommendations? That would be really appreciated. Yeah, just do an email. There's also some courses you can take. You know, um, uh, there's uh, Offensive Security. I think their URL is, you know, offensive-security.com. They have some, you know, I, I haven't taken the courses personally, but I have some friends that are uh, uh, security experts that have and say that uh, they're they're very well done. So you might want to look at, you know, taking some of these online courses that help you, you know, get familiar with, you know, how to, you know, for example, doing a, an external uh, a perimeter test against a network, you know, uh, trying to learn more about, you know, how to exploit wireless networks or applications. So there's... <laughs> Definitely a lot of resources out there. There's a there's even a website that has a lot of videos. All right. So anyway, he, he, yeah, yeah, he can send you uh, an email. Sure. So, uh, so so that's easy. Um, and and when you're done with this, uh, uh, Kevin, you might want to uh, run a uh, jitter test on that line you're on because I'm telling you, you're dropping packets. Well, it's a hotel, so unfortunately, I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm just saying. Um, on the phone, you're on the air with Kevin Mitnick. Hello. Hi. 
Hi. Uh, hi. Uh, first of all, Art, listen, yes. you've been in the downtown soundtrack, soundtrack for many years of uh, late night hacking sprees, so thank you for coming back. <laughs> uh, we, used to, we used to hang out in the same uh, circles. I have a question for you regarding this, the uh, novel attack against uh, uh, Sutomo Shimomura. Um, uh, did you come up with that uh, approach, or did someone else uh, provide that uh, exploit for you? No, we were actually, I was working with this uh, guy, JSZ. It's actually detailed in Ghost in the Wires, and we were talking about this method of exploitation, mm. and uh, JSZ and I think two other individuals actually coded the attack. I didn't actually code it, but I was uh, discussing it and discussing the technique uh, prior to the implementation of the code because we were trying to compromise Shima Mara. And it may go down in history as one of the greatest uh, hacks of all time. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. You're welcome. Does your chest puff out a little when you hear that? One of the greatest security attacks of all time? Yeah, I, I don't really believe that. I think uh, there was a newer attack called uh, uh, Harp Lead, which I think was much better. <laughs> but anyway. Well, I um, know, but he said it. I mean... But we were, like, in discussions. We were talking about techniques that could be used. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I, I didn't code the attack. It was uh, another group of people. But, or, you know, it, it worked it worked quite well, and it was quite novel for the time. All right. Uh, Kenny on Skype. Hi. Hello. I actually, this is Carly, his wife. Okay, Kylie. <laughs> his, his account. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had a quick question. I'm actually a uh, bachelor's. Uh, degree in cybersecurity, and I was curious as to emerging areas in the field that you're interested in. You think that are really good to kind of focus on as a new new graduate. Hmm, that's that's quite interesting. Well, you know, um, I I prefer I, I like the area of security testing. That's kind of what I focus on. But I mean, there's different areas of security, like doing forensics, uh, you know, security, uh, security implementation, you know, working with, uh, you know, being a sales engineer, you know, for a company that's selling security products or actually building products. I mean, there's so many areas of, of information security that, yeah, you know, what is your interest? What, what do you like to do? And, and, uh, give me some more information about that. Um, I have a pretty, wide background in the field of security and I um, I actually was just interested in areas of emerging software or uh, companies that you feel have the, the biggest area for potential growth well I, I you know again for potential growth I always look at you know companies that have you know recently IPO'd um, uh, and I, I'm trying to think I don't really want to mention the names of companies to be honest with you on, on the air but uh, um, one area that you might want to, you know, consider, you know, research in or, or, or focusing on that, and it's, it's a problem that hasn't been solved, is the problem of malware. I, I, pretty much, it's it, it's not hard for any reasonable skilled attacker to bypass any of the antivirus products that are out on the market, and some of the other products that have spun up, you know, by other companies could be bypassed as well. So there's not, there hasn't been a solve yet to solve the issue of malware. So that might be some area that you might be interested in focusing on that's, you know, still emerging. Well, and, you know, well at least companies are trying to figure out ways to, to solve the problem. I'm all for that. Um, and is it all right if I ask one more question? Yes. 
Okay. Um, I was wondering, uh, for your actual security system of choice, why you prefer that one the most out of all of the other ones like Linux and all the popular ones, obviously. Okay. Wait, wait, why do I prefer what now? What, what security? I never said I, I preferred any security system of choice. No. You're talking about the operating oh. system? Yes. Oh, I said VMS uh, because I, yeah, that was my favorite system to hack back in the day. So it was kind of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. All right. And I, um, you mentioned PGP as being a secure uh, way of actually communicating, and I was just curious as to why, because I, in my, like, 101 classes, they were mentioning that was already hackable back in 2005. Well, I don't know anybody that's broken RS, uh, you know, the the I don't know anyone that's broken PGP. And I'd like, yeah, you know, if if you could send me, uh, it hasn't been done. Okay. No, the PGP hasn't been broken. All right. Now there's ways to like, you know, steal keys by getting malware on some target machine and stealing, you know, key, you know, the keys and stealing the key ring. Of course, there's those types of attacks, but um, PGP hasn't been broken per se if you just in- intercept the encrypted material. All right. Go into the phones. Um, hello, you're on the air with Kevin. Hi, Art. Hi, Kevin. Hey. A couple of areas of, of interest. Um, one is with the shift from analog to digital digital telephony, how has that expanded or contracted phone freaking? And the other thing is there's concern about smart TVs snooping on people, mm-hmm. and the governor here in California recently signed legislation concerning that. But I'm thinking that might not be a bad thing because given the state of TV programming these days, <laughs> it might be more entertained by me than I'm being entertained by it. Now there is that. So anyway, but uh, the 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 uh, digital versus analog and phone freaking, and also how does smart TV snoop on us? All right, well let's start with the phone freaking stuff. Well, you know, back in the day when we we're dealing with analog, we could use you know multi freak, you know, uh, multi frequency tones because it was you know in band signaling. Uh, uh, per se, and uh, you know, and you know, monkey with the phone network. Um, today, that that's all changed. Now it's out of band signaling. In fact, uh, nowadays anyone could go to the Apple App Store and download a Blue Box app, which would have been a, a felony to have back in the you know probably the 80s or the 90s. As far as the smart TV stuff, you know, that's definitely concerning from a privacy perspective. There's already been you know hacks that uh, I heard about about you know people that have. Another built-in webcam on their television about being able to enable that webcam and get access, obviously, to you know spy on somebody if they're on the same local local network as uh, as the TV is on. But also, a lot of you know this new technology, this new emerging technology, actually allows you to wake it up by speaking to it, like some of the you know gaming systems. So you could actually talk to it, and it will wake up when you you know when you talk. And then you have to wonder like, what? Where's that? Where's that? What you're saying, that audio, where's that being sent? Is it being sent to Microsoft? Mm-hmm. Does Microsoft basically store that information, you know, somewhere, even though, you know, uh, even though you're not actually commanding the actual device, but you have some device in your home that's actually intercepting your audio and passing it to some third party? That's kind of scary. Well, I'm in trouble now because I've been talking back to my TV for years, so. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, caller, thank you. Um, so I've got a question based on the last caller. The last caller was on a cell phone. And, uh, Kevin, he sounded 
like he was on a cell phone. How long and when is it going to take, uh, what is it going to take for cell companies to begin to devote just a little more bandwidth so they don't sound like <laughs> uh, Bigfoot scat? I, I mean, really, it's got to get better because it can't get worse. Yeah, in fact, I remember that uh, my friend, you know, Steve Wozniak, he, uh, when, right when they had digital and analog devices, you know, still had analog, he, he always used analog phones because Same they here. sounded much better. Same here. Yes, yeah, exactly. And now that, we're, now that we're in the digital world, we're kind of stuck, you know, with whatever provider that, you know, well, we're going with. Yes. Yes, we're, yes and no. I mean, they've eventually got to move more toward the pin drop era. And, Right now, uh, you could drop a hammer and you might only hear it as a little distortion on a cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have no idea of when <laughs> these cellular providers are going to actually improve the quality of their voice calls. Well, the first one that does will get my business. I'll tell you that. I've heard T-Mobile was making a few moves in the uh, bandwidth era. Uh, I haven't kept my Arena, uh, ear close to the ground on that issue. Mm-hmm. I just figured when it happens, I'll be happy and, and until it does. You know, I'm just stuck using. When, no, when, I'm, I'm stuck on AT and T, unfortunately. Yeah, but. Well, me too. But when it does happen, you'll hear it. Um, Mike on uh, Skype, you're on the air. Uh, thanks for taking my call, Art. You bet. Uh, two quick questions. Uh, one is, I keep my passwords in a file, <laughs> and I cut and paste them in instead of typing them in. Will that help with keyloggers? Well, I mean, if some attacker has a keylogger on on your system, uh, they obviously could do much more than just simply keylogging. So they okay. could probably just open up the file. I think it's a bad idea to simply okay. have an Excel spreadsheet or a text file and cut and paste. Okay. Uh, and the key. Uh, wait, let me finish. Um, the other issue is. Uh, I think it's much better rather than you choosing your own passwords that you use a password manager. You know, there's free ones like KeePass and Password Safe, for example, and that way you randomly generate passwords for all the different you know sites that you're visiting, for example, and then you protect that with a master password. But again, if there's malware that ends up on your machine, the attacker could steal the database, keylog your master password, and it's game over. If you're you know if you're yeah, so so there you go. Well, thank right. you. The second question is, yeah. has anybody either maliciously or trying to impress you tried to hack you or your company? <laughs> well, that, I always get that question. Well, they actually successfully hacked our, our web server that was managed by a third-party company. We were uh, Back in the day, we were paying like 50 bucks a month to this third-party company that, you know, where we hosted our web server, and it was completely separate from our network. Uh, and we didn't even have root ac- administrative access to the web server. We were able to upload, you know, and download files, you know, through FTP. And this uh, third-party uh, company kept getting compromised. And I think one of the reasons they were kept getting compromised is because they handled our our, our web server. So after dealing with that a couple times, uh, and uh, what we decided to do is we moved over to uh, Firehost, uh, which is now called Armor. And they've done a really a stellar job at uh, making sure at least the they're not going to get hacked, so we end up getting hacked after. Hmm. Well, thank you very much, and glad to have you back, Art. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for the call. Um, I'm thinking of going backwards, you know, 
maybe technology has advanced so far that I need to begin using Netscape. Nobody will know how to hack that anymore. Well, that's, you know, that's Firefox nowadays, right? So, <laughs> so that's not going to help you. Yeah, when I we... think the Firefox browser is one of the most vulnerable browsers out there. Yeah. In what? fact, the NSA has these uh, Fox Acid servers oh. that uh, they try to re- redirect you as their target. Oh, and exploits vulnerabilities in Firefox to you know drop malicious software onto your system to monitor you. Okay, all right, hold on, Kevin. We're at a break point, and we'll do one more segment. Kevin Mitnick is my guest, and uh, we're that was a sneeze. Get a shiver in the dark. It's raining in the park. The meantime, hope he's okay. This is midnight. Midnight in the Desert doesn't screen calls. We trust you, but remember the NSA. Well, you know. To call the show, please dial 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. I have to do that again. You know, honor of Kevin being here. Kevin Mitnick is my guest. You're welcome to join us via phone line, standard or otherwise. And, of course, uh, on Skype. Remember, we are MITD51 in North America, MITD55 out there in the rest of the world. And uh, here, once again, is Kevin. And one more thing I want to bring up with you before we uh, proceed, and that is this. Um. I have noticed, Kevin, that um, uh, my bank, which I won't name, and my credit card company, which I also won't name, both have astoundingly good um, algorithms in place. And in each case where I've had a problem lately, they have caught it, bam, like that. I mean, their computer algorithms must be so, so good because they know if that's me or somebody else doing it, either by geolocation or by my buying habits or whatever it is, each time the bank or the credit card company has caught it, boom, like that. Any comments? Well, I guess you've been lucky because uh, in some cases the banks don't catch it. Well, yeah. Right. And in your case, I guess... Again, it's luck. I hear myself echoing back. Um, well, I didn't do anything different. Okay, that's weird. I hear myself talking in the background. Uh, anyway, a- anyway, when I when I think about like financial, you know, like financial security people that um, uh, want to protect their bank accounts from getting hacked, I think it, the the I think a very simple solution. You know, people will spend. A uh, hundred bucks a year for their antivirus software. Mm. You know, right? Imagine if you just double it. You just go buy a Google Chromebook, and you use the Google Chromebook. You use the browser in what they call guest mode, so it doesn't save anything on the Chromebook. Mm. And you only use that to log on to your credit card company, log on to your bank account, log on to your brokerage account at Morgan Stanley or Schwab, and you never keep any passwords, of course, on you know the computer you use for everyday use. That's going to really make it really difficult for somebody to compromise you. Okay. I assume you probably went back to your uh, headset and your problem went away. Oh, yeah. I'm back. <laughs> Jeff on Skype, you're on the air. 
Hey, uh, great show as always, and Thank Kevin, uh, it's good talking to you. Uh, so I'm a CISSP IT security professional. Got a source fire certifications and blah blah blah, all that stuff. Been doing it for a while. And uh, one thing that I'm noticing, well, first of all, one of my specialties is definitely penetration testing for internal organizations that I work for. And ironically, I like magic too, which is really cool. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed here that seems to be trending, Gardner put out a study here a while back about bimodal application development. And, of course, everybody who's anybody is using agile-type management to where they're creating code and just dumping it in. And I'll tell you, I I will put out study after study, report after report, looking for internal vulnerabilities, external vulnerabilities in company systems, and they're paying big money for that stuff. However, what I find out is this newer trend, it seems newer to me, in taking an offshoring, uh, especially web app code, and they're having this stuff done like by India and resources and whatnot, and I find out that companies seem to be pretty lax about giving some company that they don't even know the people who are working there access directly into their systems to write, test, debug, and produce this code and then, of course, the company puts it in production, and they're saying, okay, well, it's good and it's safe. Um, I've just seemed to have a lot of concerns. It makes me really nervous, and I've seen a lot of companies do now. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Okay. Kevin? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, no, I, I, I completely uh, agree with what you're saying, that you you definitely should be concerned about, you know, where you're outsourcing your development. But more importantly, no matter if it's uh, India, China, or Indonesia, it doesn't matter as long as you're you're going through some uh, processes that's actually going, you know, somebody that, you know, some team that's quite knowledgeable is going to actually analyze the code and look for potential security vulnerabilities in the code uh, before it's actually deployed. And what you just said, you just mentioned, you know, that was that seemed to be a, a huge missing step in the process that basically web app is developed and, and deployed and and that's it. But there there needs to be some sort of a security development lifecycle there of where any code, even you know, updates to existing code, goes through some processes where that code is evaluated by security knowledgeable people to try to mitigate the chances that they're going to obviously introduce uh, newer vulnerabilities. Sure. Okay, quickly to the phones. You're on the air with Kevin. Hello, on the phone. Hendersonville somewhere. Hello. Going once, going twice. Sorry about that. You waited a long time. Winnipeg, Manitoba, I think. Hello. Hello, how are you? Fine. We'll just call me a root user. Okay, anyways. Um, okay, user. I would, root user. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyways, our great uh, intro to the show with the Tommy Chong Easter egg exploit. That was awesome. <laughs> yes. Had to remark about that. But anyways, uh, I have a quick question for Mr. Mitnick about um, a system I'm currently repairing, working on right now. It's a laptop, and it was injected, and with uh, probably a really, really technical source code. And I was wondering your thoughts. Um, you, When you try to... What do you mean uh, by technical into... source code? Uh, yeah, apparently he's got something wrong. All right, you're going to have to send us $29.95, and we're going to fix you right up. And what's the problem, actually? Okay, well, when you put in... Um, <laughs> 
when you try to put in uh, the super user password, right, because I have elevated it, right, because um, the operating system wasn't um, a Linux-based operating system at the time. So um, when you when you put in the super user password, when it's plugged in, it's it just fails and fails and fails. You, you put it on battery, and then it'll go in the first time you put in the password. Hmm. Could that be a power grid um, type of uh, attack? <laughs> I never heard of such a crazy thing. Um, I haven't either. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like you have a unique issue. And, and, and um, so, wait a second, you didn't even identify the operating system that you're yeah. running with. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think with this caller, yeah, it's, it's messing like with a very us. weird call. Yeah. Well, and you send us $29.95. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the second question I have. Well, you didn't answer the first one. Which What operating system is it? Oh, okay. Originally, when I believe that it got injected, it was Windows 7. Injected? And well, what do you mean injected? Yeah, injected. What does that mean? Well, like when it got infected. Oh, infected. Infected. Very different okay. than injected. Yeah, sort yeah, of. Yeah, well, I, it could have been SQL injected somehow, or you know what I mean, but like infected, we'll say. I'm uh -huh. like trying to find the root of... And what, and what the, makes you think that somebody used a SQL injection to compromise your... Windows 7 laptop, I think you said you had. Well, well, uh, I don't, but I just thought it was a power, like, like, because when you take it off of, um, like, power and, and put in the, put it in on battery. Well, it's obvious to me, that. sir, that it's coming through the power line. It's a, uh, it's a it's UFO. An, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's an injected thing through the power line saying. Alien. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't yeah. think we can solve your problem, sir. I appreciate yeah, your And problem. I doubt anyone used SQL injection on your laptop. <laughs> um, uh, Bill on Skype, hello. Yeah, hello. Can you Hi. hear me? I hear you. Great. Well, although you're very far from your microphone, uh, so if you would get close to whatever, you know, injects the audio into your computer, it would be better. Okay, how about that? Is That's, that any better? Oh, way better, yes. Okay, I use uh, Fedora. I'm on Fedora 21. It's uh, the free version of Red Hat software. Okay. All right. Now, they use uh, what's called SE Linux. Right. Which is a secure Linux. Uh, Correct. Could you give us some input on that of the security measures or, you know, whatever? That, that's all well, I have. That was, okay, so you're I'll just asking if, if this Linux you have is secure. Well, yeah, it sounds like he's considering moving uh, from Fedora to SE Linux. I think if right. you're, you're concerned, it's a, it's a more of a hardened operating, you know, more of a hardened uh, OS. Uh, so I'd recommend if you're, you're definitely look at SE Linux. And if you're interested in looking at the different uh, uh, features or pros and cons of it, you could just use Google. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's go to Kurt. Kurt, hello. Hey, uh, Art, how you doing? It's Kurt in uh, Tallis in Arizona. Yes, hi. I wanted to ask him, uh, uh, just today it was announced here in Phoenix that T-Mobile uh, was hacked, about a million customers, all their information, everything about everybody. Wow. Is there a way that he can trace back to who did that with his... Uh, in other words, forensic work. Yeah. Oh. Well, I, I, I couldn't tell you. It's, it's called an incident response. So when a client gets compromised, they'll hire us to do an incident response. And in some cases, you know, you can't find who, who the attacker is because it's uh, so easy to make it look like it's, you know, it's coming from anywhere in the world. Or imagine, you know, you have the attacker compromises one company system and then uses that as a jumping off point 
to attack a second uh, company. So, uh, oh. so it, it, it all depends. You know, it, it depends on, you know, a lot of factors. And, you know, I can't really say, uh, yes or no to whether, you know, I could actually trace back who hacked into Cuba. If they were really good, probably not. Yeah. All right. Pro- that's probably not. You know, nice probably, I mean, they just could have used, uh, uh, a neighbor's wi- uh, wireless access point, for example. It really depends on the sophistication of the people doing it. But then again, people make stupid mistakes. Like apparently I read in the news today that uh, the uh, CTO of Uber's, uh, uh, you know, their, major, their, their competitor had hacked into Uber from his home, and they were able to trace back the IP address, which I thought was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was like pretty, pretty insane. For somebody, you know, you know, you know, rule number one, like a fight club, well, rule number one of hacking is you never do it from home or work. Yeah. All right. I guess rule number one of fight club is you don't talk about fight club, but with, with the hacking, you know, you, you know, if anyone is going to do this from work or home, that's a pretty careless behavior. So this guy who recently allegedly hacked into Uber has indeed done it from home. So I was surprised. All right. Uh, to the phones and Clearwater, Florida, probably. Um, my name is uh, Stan, and I'm interested in knowing if he uh, could tell me if Snort is effective in deterring any type of uh, infection, or what would he recommend? Well, Snort is good for yeah. You know, basically, Snort is like an intrusion detection system. You know, it's uh, it's essentially free, I believe, open source, and uh, it basically is a signature-based system. So, basically, if you're Running Snort on on a network, uh, you could detect when a when any of the signatures that you know, are currently being used are uh, triggered uh, as one, some sort of attack. Problem, but that's not going to really problem. Uh, what? One problem is that uh, I've tried to get information from all type of sources, and say for instance, like Geek Squad tells me that you have to go out and try to find the tech. You're not going to be able to do that, they tell me. Who would I be able to find? Well, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Software? All right, what are you trying to do, caller? Uh, properly install the software so I could use it. What software? Snort? The Snort software. Well, I, I can't walk you through how to uh, installing Snort is actually quite easy. I mean, if you're running a, a Linux-based operating system, you could just well, depending on which one, you could use apt aptitude well, or young right to install yeah. it. But, but then you have to configure I, it, and you have to configure the different rule sets to detect certain attack signatures that might end up you know being used over your network. Either that, or get a razor blade, lay it out, use a hundred dollar bill. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a complex question for this type of show. Yeah, it obviously is. Yeah. Um, hello there on uh, on the phone. You're on with uh, Kevin. Hello. Hello. Oh, yes, there you are. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Bell, uh, Mr. Minnick. Uh, I was just curious if uh, you were familiar with uh, any of uh, James Bamford's work. Particularly uh, the Shadow Factory, and they have their uh, their at least they used to have their uh, yearly uh, trade show at uh, Crystal City by Fort Meade. Do you have any idea what he's speaking about, uh, Kevin? Yeah, well, James Bamford is an author of right. uh, well, I remember he authored Puzzle Palace, and uh, and I'm not familiar with any new uh, works that he's done. 
but he's asking something about Bamford, and I, I'm unclear what he's trying to yeah, ask. I, I, well, that was my perfect example of what a cell phone sounds like, probably in a marginal coverage area, but nevertheless, that's what it sounds like, and that is and has been one of my major complaints now for years. They, they're they going to get better. Yeah, I, maybe they'll move back to, uh, to amps or, or amps, you know, go back to analog. <laughs> no, it, they're not going to go back to analog. But I'm kidding. Gonna, you know, they can allocate more bandwidth, and they can make it sound much better. I mean, if Skype can sound as good as it sounds, you're not going to tell me that there's not a way for the cell phones to sound better. It's just that they're trying to squeeze a bazillion of us in a very tiny little pipe. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, hello there. You're on the air with Kevin Mitnick. Hello, Art, and hello, Kevin. Uh, Kevin, could you talk about uh, the fun times you used to have on 435? It was a, a radio repeater, your ham radio oh, yeah. days. And uh, you used to shut off our... You used to shut off hey, Art, have you ever heard of 435? Yeah, I know all about 435, Southern <laughs> California, yes. Yeah, so that, uh, the Renegade repeater. Yeah, I remember the good old days, you know, back... Uh, God, I haven't been on 435 for, you know, for years. Is it still raging, caller? Uh, yes, it is. It's uh, it's in Southern California, obviously, you know that, and we always have fun on the air. But, Kevin, should, you should tell people that uh, people used to dare you to shut their home phones off. <laughs> oh, yeah, recently their phone Burton. would shut off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have you ever heard of Richard Burton art? I mean, he oh, was yeah. a pretty, you know, he, he was the only one that I think was uh, prosecuted by the FCC. Um, uh, anyway, uh, any, anyway, when I was in, during my younger years, uh, uh, me and Burton used to go at it, and I think at, at one time I turned off his phone or something uh, when I was like 15. But anyway, that's a that's a longer story. Yes, you know the FCC is beginning to shut down a bunch of field offices. A lot of people are not all that happy about that fact. And, and, the, and then of course so there's others in Southern California that are happy. Days. I remember I had to like do the code and everything, and now yeah. it's just so much easier. It's that's surprising. Right. I know it's too easy. Kevin, my friend, uh, as always, thank you for being here. It has been a pleasure. And once again, you're, you're, you're going to have a new book, right? Yeah, it's called The Art of Invisibility. It uh, hopefully will be out in, in under a year. And it's going to basically teach people uh, that aren't so technically astute how to protect their communications, their email, their text messages, their voice calls, how to kind of get off the grid so your nosy neighbor, your significant other, your boss, your parents, or law enforcement or the NSA can't easily monitor your communications. That's quite a group. All right, my friend, thank you, and we'll do it again one day, of course. Thank you for having me on your show, Arthur. Ke- it's always a pleasure. Kevin Mitnick, take care. A pleasure indeed. That was a lot of fun. All right, well, it's Thursday already, so tomorrow is open lines. If you have a special line that you think would be particular fun, you can email me. The correct email address is artbell at K-N-Y-E. That's kilowatt, Nancy, Yokohama, easy. Don't get this. Most people get dyslexic and do it the wrong way. So it's artbell at K-N-Y-E dot com. From the high desert to the world's time zones and all of you living within, good night. Good night.